morning, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when, as you know, if you listen to the show regularly, almost anything can happen. So on that note, let me give you a kind of a postscript to last night's show, where we very serendipitously went to open minds because my guest, my planned guest, Neville Thompson, who is perhaps the world's preeminent gigapan uh, provider, uh, did not show because he and I both got the dates wrong. Because I had called him like a week ago last Sunday when I had one of those horrible migraines and I'd said to him, literally in a live conversation on Skype, I got to him in the afternoon, so he was still awake in England in the evening. I said, Neville, let's recycle the count and do this next Saturday. I feel awful. We can't do a show tonight. There's no way. And he talked about his mother and her migraines and all that. And we left agreeing, we thought, that he would come on tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, last night. Well, after the show, of course, I sent him an email and I said, are you okay? And he was very sheepish. He said, I overslept because I thought it was Sunday night, Monday morning. So obviously the you know, my confusion and the proud of his mind and then his, uh, you know, transposition of, of times and dates, because remember, when we do the show here, it's the next day in England. So he has now been rescheduled for next Saturday night, this coming Saturday, uh, six days from now. And then on Sunday night, and I'm thinking that my guest tonight's going to be very interested in listening to, uh, either the show live or a replay of next Sunday night, because next Sunday night I'm doing three hours of a background for the Artemis one unmanned test launch mission around the moon for six weeks. A 42 day mission is being planned. Uh, and you know, my suspicions that it will be delayed and they will actually launch on September 2nd, which is their next open launch window. Why? Well, because September 2nd is a 39-day long mission. And as you will see next Sunday night, um, they have built in a number of 39s, which, of course, is twice 19.5 into the mission plan. And we will unveil them and decode them one by one in addition to a, I hope, stunning uh, panorama of all the astonishing things on the moon that have been discovered over the last 50 years since Apollo and even before that um, NASA for some reason just hasn't kind of gotten around to telling us about. And we may get into that this evening, we may not, but uh, uh, I was talking with Chandra a few minutes ago about the possibility that uh, these upcoming three missions to the moon, the um, uh, unmanned but capable of carrying humans Artemis One test flight, and then the two unmanned robotic missions, the uh, Capstone uh, mission launched about a month ago, and the Denuri mission launched by the South Koreans uh, just a couple weeks ago or maybe a week ago, carrying the uh, Malin Shadow Cam weighing all of 33 symbolic pounds on the South Korean unmanned 1,500-pound spacecraft. Um, they're all going into lunar orbit. They all 
are going to be carrying extraordinarily sophisticated state-of-the-art uh, digital HD imaging systems. And out of all of that, if we don't see what's really there and the world go through potentially the second greatest paradigm shift of all time, uh, Chandra and I tonight are going to talk about the first and we will not leave that on the cutting room floor before I bring him on. So without further ado, that's kind of like a recap of what was going on last night. And again, it was so serendipitous because I had a number of callers. Everybody had brilliant questions, excellent responses. Even my old friend and antagonist on the whole Trump experience, Robert Morningstar. And I was very fascinated and, and, um, um, kind of, you know, buttressed in my perception of Robert and his character, that he correctly identified President Trump's failure to completely release the 50-plus-year-old Kennedy files, which under law should have been declassified last year or even the year before. I forget exactly when. And the president, President Trump, under the aegis of the CIA, demurred, and there are apparently something like 300 files that ex-President Trump is now, um, basically, he committed an illegal, illegal act. And I was really intrigued that uh, Robert admitted that he committed a major illegal act, but I think that Robert's attribution that has something to do with mundane and stupid and really kind of absurd terrestrial politics is missing the point. Because part of what did not enter into our conversation last night, which the next time I have Robert on, I'm going to bring it up. Remember one of the other things that President Trump was told that came out toward the end of his four years, that he had wanted to uh, declassify and reveal the existence of extraterrestrials, extraterrestrial life, meaning, you know, little guys, big guys, whatever kind of guys in spaceships. And that some group within the Israeli government, um, their, their, their uh, you know, intelligence community, the Mossad and whatever, um, had basically told him by means of an intermediary contact, i.e. the Israelis were talking to the ETs, the ETs talked to the Israelis, the Israelis talked to Trump and said, no, you guys aren't ready yet, which, of course, I think is propaganda. Remember, delay, delay, delay. We're never supposed to know our real situation on Earth. And that's up to and includes a lot of things that literally could go back 13.8, is it 13.8 now? Billion years in the past where the ostensible Big Bang, which started this whole soap opera, supposedly began. Well, tonight we're going to hear as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. And it's getting really interesting, really exciting, really fast. So um, as prelude, let me go through a couple of news items. Obviously, if you are new to the other side of midnight, what you want to do is you want to click on uh, the other side of midnight.com. That's our home base. That's our URL. That will take you to our home page at the top of the home page, just below the banner. You will see tonight's show banner, which says how the Webb Space Telescope will prove the reality 
of extraterrestrial life. Now, I know that's kind of a sweeping assertion on my part, but I seem to have good company because I think uh, Dr. Rick Ramasinghe and I share the same perception that because of the extraordinary capabilities of Webb already demonstrated, as we're going to talk about in some detail in the rest of these uh, three hours, uh, that is really not a over the edge of the surfboard um, assertion, because I think from a number of different uh, directions, the new web data will wind up proving that not only are we not alone, but there is this exquisite, extraordinary, intimate connection between what's been going on here and what has gone on out there. And time, and maybe not very much of it, will tell. So once you find the guest page, you want to click on under that banner on the guest page. It says Fast Links Items. Click on my name. It takes you down to the section of the uh, Radio with Pictures page. And my first item, of course, is the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, this is the home page, not a kind of a log or a, um, uh, you know, uh, progress page. This is the home page for Webb. And I, I'm putting that up tonight so that you can follow all the various threads of new research and new announcements. And there are even links there somewhere. I haven't had time to kind of look myself, but I know they're somewhere to the actual raw web data. As I was uh, talking with Chandra moments ago, like JPL, which has put up raw images from Curiosity and Perseverance and a number of other missions over the years, like uh, Cassini and Galileo, uh, they, the web people have put up a raw data page where you can actually, if you know where the links are, you can actually find your way to the web data, including imaging, uh, before it's made generally public and before it comes out in uh, scientific papers, which is a very important public transparency step forward for the agency. Because this is the cutting-edge data, which frankly is going to totally upend, I think, uh, terrestrial civilization. And again, it's only a matter of time. And it may not be that much time. In fact, it may not be past the end of 2022, which might explain that very bizarre artifact in the Biden White House in the Oval Office, um, which we'll talk about next Sunday night. Item number two. Last night, August 20th, was literally the 45th anniversary of the launch of Voyager 2. Remember, way back in the 1970s, uh, we sent two spacecraft uh, on unending journeys into interstellar space. And I, I know some of the initial calculations way back then were that the, uh, the uh, Voyagers and the pioneers preceding them would probably last beyond the death of the sun, which is projected, according to the models, to be something like 5 billion uh, years from now before the sun expands to a red giant and then collapses into a little white dwarf about the size of the earth and smolders away for billions and billions, hundreds of billions of years, cooling like an ember in the dark. Well, the new data says that the Voyager spacecraft, both of them, and by metonymy, 
because they're basically the same, you know, spacecraft type, same engineering, same materials, same galaxy, same velocities, all four, and actually you need to add new horizons in that because we now have five spacecraft, unmanned spacecraft, that are literally moving away from the solar system in excess of the escape velocity from the sun at those distances. And so they will drift through the galaxy never to return. Well, the latest calculations for all these five robots are that they won't last just billions of years, which would put them beyond the lifespan of the Earth and the sun, or even hundreds of billions of years, which would put them beyond the lifespan of a lot of the stars currently glittering in the galaxy. But now the latest calculation says they should last for, wait for it, trillions of years. And I did not have time before the show to go and look and see where this extraordinary calculation was posted or published or how it was peer-reviewed. But in, in essence, what we have done, the human race barely out of you know diapers, is we have created essentially the first – well, actually not in my view – the current latest version of interstellar immortal artifacts that our current human civilization uh, is capable of creating. It's literally, these things are going to be out there forever by any human time frame or even computer's time frame. So for a little probe, or actually five of them, launched from this planet, this solar system, in this out-of-the-way spiral arm of a rather average galaxy, is capable of creating artifacts that will last to the end of time. If you can think of time as having uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's, of course, what we're going to talk about tonight, because it may be that the only thing that will bring these craft to destruction of some form could be the literal ending of this cycle of the universe itself. And that, of course, has introduced several interesting terms, um, which we will get into with Chandra momentarily, which brings me to item number three. Um, according to people who have been looking at this very carefully, I'm really kind of surprised that this data has come in so early, because normally something of such paradigm-shattering potential, you know, they sit on it, they talk about it, they dream about it, they hem and haw and... You know, it's, it's, it's a long time before it gets published. It's certainly published in any peer-reviewed uh, uh, forum journal. But this, this information, this, this idea, this concept that maybe the Big Bang didn't happen and that Webb has provided evidence to the contrary, I mean, it's so hot off the presses that uh, it even has exceeded the uh, velocity of misinformation on the, on the Internet. And there is a book, a very famous book, published back in the 1970s, I think, by a guy named uh, Eric J. Lerner called The Big Bang Never Happened. And it's been so long since I read the book that I don't even remember his assembled evidence. Some of it has to do with maybe things we think are galaxies receding or merely clumps of plasma orbiting the Milky Way, something like that. And I'm obviously totally misreading or misremembering. But... Chandra will enlighten me in the next few minutes. So without further ado, um, let me uh, 
give you the background on my guest of the evening. He has been a guest on the show many times before, and our conversations have only gotten increasingly interesting and deep and, uh, uh, shall we say, open-ended. So let me be a little formal here. Professor Chandravik Ramasinghe is an internationally acclaimed astronomer and one of the foremost pioneers of modern astrobiology. Chandra is famous for his pioneering studies on the carbonaceous nature of cosmic dust, interstellar dust, and the prevalence of extraterrestrial life. And of course, a lot of that interstellar stuff comes sweeping through the solar system and thereby uh, hangs a tale of life on Earth, according to Chandra's major model. Uh, Dr. Wickrama Singh is recipient of several international awards and honorary doctorates and was a former fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, and a professor at Cardiff University for more than 40 years. He is currently an honorary professor and director of the Buckingham Center for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham, an honorary professor and director of the University of Runa Center for Astrobiology in Sri Lanka, honorary professor at the Sir John Kettlewalla Defense University of Sri Lanka, associate professor of the National Institute of Fundamental Studies in Sri Lanka, and also a founding member of the newly formed Institute for the Study of Panspermia and Astroeconomics in Gifu, Japan. He has written over 30 books, 300 scientific papers, and still counting over 60 of these in the premier scientific peer-reviewed journal of planet Earth, the journal Nature. So without further ado, Chandra, come on down. Hi, nice talking to you again after all these weeks. Well, I, I was so di- I was so bummed, as we say in the in this country, or disappointed, as you would say there, that you couldn't be on weeks ago, right after uh, uh, Webb was uh, unveiled, and and you were suffering from some of the after effects of COVID. I'm I'm glad to report tonight yeah. that you're hale yeah, and hearty yeah, and I, fit. Yeah, I just didn't feel like uh, getting up in the morning and and on that occasion, and it was a bit. Uh, it is all a bit of a mess, but now we are, at least we are together and we are talking, so let's go ahead. Well, the, uh, see, this is why I say that, you know, God is kind of our executive producer, and that's only slightly tongue-in-cheek, um, mm-hmm. because if we had had this conversation even a few weeks ago, we would not have the information and the data that we can discuss very robustly tonight which frankly stands on the edge of totally upending everything we think we know about the universe. And that's not a trivial statement to be able to make in only two or three short weeks. Yeah, that's right. I mean, things have happened at such a pace that it's almost incredible. And, um, and uh, I I think it's, uh, as you said, what's happening is, is truly a game changer in terms of our perceptions of the universe that we've been clinging to for almost uh, half a century or more than that now. Okay, before we get to the game-changing stuff, I think what you need to do is delve into your personal history because you happen to be very close friends and colleagues with one of my scientific idols, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, back before he even was was, uh, knighted. I remember Fred Hoyle, remember the whole controversy over steady state versus Big Bang, so for those people that have come into the conversation late, and I'm talking about, you know, decades late, let's begin mm. at the beginning and lay out what happened after George Gamow proposed 
the so-called Big Bang model, which was a term that came from uh, Hoyle rather derisively, I think, one evening on a BBC radio show, because he was completely opposed to the idea the universe had a beginning or an end and felt that it was always here, and we were just kind of looking at the data wrongly. And the other information in that same time frame, which supported the idea of a Big Bang and then an expansion and all that, was the Lowell uh, discoveries at Lowell Observatory by Slipher of the redshifts of these little cloudy things that at that time were not even known to be extra Milky Way galaxies. And it was only when Hubble, the famed Hubble at Mount Wilson, uh, was able to measure the distance to Andromeda at over a million light years back then, that mm. the idea that these little smudgy fudges or fudgy smudges were really other galaxies and they were receding. And so there was a foundation laid for a very simple, naive model that if you have an explosion, things race away from the center and you could look at the redshifts as a physical Doppler shift because things were speeding away from our apparent position at the, quote, center, all observationally kind of selected. So that was the model. And so now you can swing into where uh, Dr. Hoyle, and I believe it was a guy named Narlicker at the time, who came That's up right. with something yeah, really was... radically different. And so take it away from there. Uh, okay. Well, I arrived in Cambridge in 1960. Uh, in the 1960s to work with Fred Hoyle as his student and he had just sort of published his work on the uh, formation of the elements and he was a great big name in astronomy at the time uh, and uh, it was my privilege just to, to have my sort of PhD training under him so uh, at the time that I saw him he was really busy working on um, uh, what is called the steady state theory, uh, a challenge to the so-called Big Bang theory. Now, I, th I think we should go a little back in time now because most of the, the definite knowledge we have about the universe and we had about the universe discovered uh, by really much earlier generations of telescopes long before uh, even James Webb and so on were conceived. Uh, and this goes back over a hundred years, and these were telescopes, uh, really historic telescopes, like what you mentioned, the Mount Wilson Telescope in California, 100-inch telescope, and so on, uh, which essentially transformed astronomy. And um, Hubble's discovery, uh, you refer to that as well, of redshifts, uh, led to the idea of an oh, expansion. Wait, 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 Hubble did not discover the redshift. That was Slipher at the Lowell That's Observatory, and yeah, Hubble and Wilson, for political reasons, yes. because Lowell delved, delved into Mars, and nobody is supposed to ever think about life on Mars, so I yes. think politically, and I actually wrote this in a book two years ago, there was a political schism where Lowell and Slipher and the redshift discovery at Lowell was basically you know, suppressed, and everybody was made to think that it was Hubble at Mount Wilson using the 100-inch to discover the redshift. No, it was Earl Slipher at the Lowell Observatory in northern Arizona, about 300 miles to the west of me. 
Yeah, 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 I stand corrected. I think that was certainly true historically. But it was Hubble's uh, interpretation of the redshifts that essentially changed the course of uh, of cosmological history, isn't it? In the 1920s, he published this very classic paper on the redshifts of galaxies interpreted as evidence of an expanding universe. The further you looked at your galaxies, the, the redshift was greater, and it seemed as though um, the, all of the stuff that is around us in the form of stars and galaxies essentially started as a point uh, some time ago, and that time has been sort of pinpointed with uh, seemingly with greater and greater accuracy to something like 13.8 billion years uh, before the present. But um, uh, so that was the the story before the the, the big telescopes, the, the bigger telescopes came into operation, and certainly long before. Uh, James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope were even dreamt about. Mm. But didn't Hubble, toward the end of his life, and he was a very unusual creature, he was a very bizarre individual. He kind of adopted all kinds of British mannerisms, and yet he mm. was born in Kentucky, I think. Anyway, yeah. didn't he, toward the end of his life, like Einstein, who toward mm. the end of his life kind of rethought and recanted relativity, um, didn't Hubble really question if the redshifts really were Doppler effects of things racing away and gravitate more toward tired light or unusual physics or whatever? Yeah, I think there were, there were uh, echoes of that uh, right from the beginning that this was not necessarily uh, a proof of expansion, but something else was going on. But I think the the, the 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 strongest opinions that has essentially survived that uh, epoch of discovery was the the Big Bang universe, uh, so-called Big Bang universe, and that was uh, favored by astronomers, cosmologists, and so on, for one simple reason, because it seemed to vindicate the uh, the, the Judeo-Christian story of a creation. Ah. Because because uh, it was a Belgian astronomer, I believe, a Jesuit named Abbe Lamatier, yeah, who had this Roman Catholic background, who also was yes. a major player in cosmology at the time, back in the what twenties, I guess, and yeah. he was yeah. a proponent that Big Bang basically authenticated the Bible in the beginning. I think that that rings through right from the beginning to the present day. The, the fact that this uh, is something that could essentially prove the Bible, prove the biblical story of creation in, in to a really uh, amazing degree of precision. This was the, the driving force for people maintaining that the Big Bang theory, Big Bang was the final explanation of how the universe came to be. And, um, uh, so in the 1960s, uh, when I m met up with Fred Hoyle and uh, my my colleague at the time, uh, roughly my age, was was Jan Nalika, who was working with Fred Hoyle on alternative cosmologies, and the cosmologies that they were working on were called steady-state cosmologies, right? So this was the idea that the universe did not start at at a definite moment in time, but it was uh, 
there for all time and existed for essentially forever. And so the uh, the, the the attempt was made to to link up all the new data that was emerging in astronomy from the uh, expansion of the universe, the Hubble data, to new data that was coming from radio astronomy uh, to essentially accommodate a model of the universe that didn't start all in one go 13.8 or 13.9 billion years ago. So this was a very serious activity that was going on in Cambridge under the um, guidance of Fred Hall, but it was not popular. I could feel the... Okay, okay. We are the, we are the bottom of the hour. Hold it right there. It was not popular. And when we come back, I'm going to propose that what Chandra is going to talk about tonight, which is a return to a non-Big Bang perspective that has new supporting evidence via web. I'm going to propose that this is not only one shattering paradigm shift, but maybe two. And I'll tell you what the second one is when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hovland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, August 21, 2022. We're discussing origins, beginning times, and everything tonight with my 
friend and guest, uh, Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe, live from England at the crack of dawn in Britain. It's uh, just sunrise or shortly uh, before or after. And we're discussing huge paradigm shifts. And maybe we should, for some of those folks out there who never heard the word, define what a paradigm shift is. And I will leave uh, Chandra to do that because I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote a very famous book about uh, uh, paradigm shift. In the, in remember- the upper right-hand corner, where okay. the other side of midnight, yes. there's a white circle with three horizontal lines. You click on that. Are you talking, Keith, to Chandra? Yeah, I was trying to get him to turn his notifications on. Oh. Yeah, I kind of noticed those, so. Uh, yeah. Tell me again now. I got, I got. Okay, while they talk about housekeeping, let me finish my backgrounder. <clears throat> uh, by the way, if you, if you notice the music, I'm, I'm really falling in love with the, the soundtrack from The Martian because it seems so apropos of this extraordinary threshold in human and cosmic history that we are now in. We are in the paradigm shift. We are in disclosure. And it's not occupying the same rate on all fronts. Some areas are moving faster than others. And then we have the secret of what is in those boxes that ex-President Trump squirreled away at Mar-a-Lago. Are there indeed the secrets of anti-gravity, free energy, extraterrestrials, visit, all that stuff that we're never, ever supposed to know. Okay, let me return to the conversation and see. Get back to Rich. Uh, Oh, perfect timing. So you guys are all set? Well, not really, but we're close. So we'll let you continue. We'll finish this in the next break. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered if it was mine or his, and I'm, I'm glad we, you know, pinned it down to at least one of ours. So as I was going to say, do you remember, Chandra, the guy who coined the term paradigm shift in science? Chandra? We didn't lose Chandra, did we? He's still there. He's probably muted. Yeah, he says he's muted. So you need to okay, unmute. Right. There you are. Okay, okay. You are back. Yeah, I don't uh, remind, remind me his name. I don't. I yeah, don't I don't remember it either. But anyway, there was a very famous scientist who wrote a book about that science, like nothing else on earth, does not proceed in a smooth curve or a straight line, but it goes through these, as you said earlier, step functions, meaning you get to a certain point and then something is discovered or a couple things and they synergize together. And a whole bunch of stuff gets turned upside down that scientists, mainstream guys and gals thought they knew, and it's called a paradigm shift. Yeah, and uh, I mean that paradigm shift in the structure in, in the of sci- the structure of scientific revolutions was the name of the book, and I still can't. Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn. Thomas Kuhn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I think that what the the upset now in cosmology and maybe the putting of the Big Bang permanently away, is a demonstration of the failure of Occam's razor thinking in terms of paradigm shifts. And for those of you who don't remember Occam's razor, Occam's razor is this uh, kind of aphorism that came from a a British gentry, uh, uh, Sir William of Occam, 
which basically says uh, the simplest hypothesis is probably true. That if you unnecessarily complicate your model, your theory, with you know appurtenances, with filigree, with additional um, kind of side explanations, the more uh, you know complicated it gets, the less likely it is to be true. And I've always felt for years, Chandra, that that is a fundamental misapprehension of how humans perceive reality. Because when it comes to the idea of intelligent life in the universe, other than Earth, other than us, by definition, it's going to be a very complicated data set that we're presented with, nothing simple about it. And the other thing that I think got us into this blind canyon is the attraction of the Big Bang model was so simple, so Occam's razorish. You have a beginning, you have a point, you have an explosion, things fly away from it. What could be simpler and more Occam's razorish than that? And the mm. idea of complicated physics and tired light and multiple dimensions and cyclic, in other words, those were all so much more complicated than a simple big bang. I think that was what overwhelmingly swayed cosmologists, that and this Christian overtone to thinking that the universe had to have a beginning. And in the midst of all that you know, noise, there were these two guys, maybe more than two, but I can remember the two, Fred Hoyle and uh, Jan Narlicker. Wait a minute. There's another alternative. And so lay out what they were proposing. Well, they, they said that if there was uh, no Big Bang and you still want the universe to be expanding, uh, you need to create, to somehow create new matter to fill the gaps between the the, the the galaxies that are flying apart. So that was the, the simplest model of the steady state theory was one of uh, a continuous creation of new matter uh, to to replenish what was being lost in terms of the expansion. So that that was uh, the, the the first attempt to do so. But I think as things progressed as the microwave, there was a discovery that was hailed as being essentially the proof of the Big Bang Theory in the 1960s, which was the discovery of the microwave, cosmic microwave background. Uh, Penziest and Wilson accidentally discovered that there was a huge sort of bath of radiation in which uh, all the planets, all the galaxies were sitting, and this was uh, attributed to the uh, radiation that emerged from the Big Bang. The Big Bang radiation was very high energy radiation to begin with, and uh, at the present time, it's become more and more degraded, and it's turned into a microwave background. That was the, the story that was really firmly accepted and believed from the 1960s onwards, uh, and nothing was... Uh, uh, able to budge that because, budge the, from that position because it was so securely held by cosmologists. Everything that happened in astronomy was sort of almost forced to fit into this uh, Big Bang model, and um, and that was the the situation that prevailed all the way until um, Fred and Nardica, and then Jeffrey Burbage was. Uh, the preeminent astronomer in California, a British-born astronomer, uh, who joined this team of uh, astronomers who said that the universe did not or need not have begun 
with a, a Big Bang and a unique event like a Big Bang. It, uh, this, uh, this, this had to be revised. So that was uh, where we uh, had uh, arrived at, at the time that uh, uh, the Hubble telescope in so two or three years ago uh, was essentially discovering galaxies at distances and at, at times in the history of the universe when there should be no galaxies, right? Uh, the, the Big Bang Theory says that it, everything started from a point, uh, energy, matter, it all started from a point, and there was uh, uh, a period in which uh, uh, nothing really could have happened except the accumulation of particles into into bigger and bigger uh, associations and formation of atoms and so on, and they have uh, uh, cryptic descriptions of dark ages in the early universe, and when nothing really could have been even seen through telescopes. But um, already with the Hubble telescope, they were finding about two or three years ago, they were finding uh, galaxies that should not be there at some six uh, six hundred. Uh, uh, million years after the Big Bang, uh, there, there should, not, should not have been any galaxies there. But now the James Webb Telescope is finding uh, even more dramatic, making more dramatic discoveries of galaxies that were only supposedly 200 years, 200 million years after the Big Bang. There should not be galaxies according to any of these Big Bang models as early as that, and yet they seem to be. Uh, crushing well, well, what you need to do is we have plenty of time. That's one thing you have with a long-form radio show. In the middle of the night, you have plenty of time. Explain the idea that past a certain point in distance, there should be in the Big Bang model no perceptible galaxies. Yeah, because the the the, the, the atoms had to form first, right? You had energy to begin with, only energy, and then you had uh, the formation of the atom, of the hydrogen atom uh, to begin with, and then you had to make stars in order to to uh, to uh, form the uh, the heavy elements. Uh, now all that stuff goes back to the 1950s and so on, when Fred Hoyle and his collaborators. Uh, showed us how stars are born in our galaxy from gas and dust clouds and how stars evolve and make all the chemical elements such as carbon, oxygen, uh, iron, and so on. And, and this was all sort of firmly set in stone, as it were, in the 1950s. Uh, so Fred Hall and his collaborators uh, worked all this out all the way back in the 1950s. And uh, and thanks to that work, and thanks to Fred and Willie Fowler and Jeffrey Burbage and Margaret Burbage, we began to understand how and where the chemical elements came from. They were made in stars. So the first step in forming galaxies would be to make uh, the chemical elements, to make hydrogen first and then helium and so on. So you have to make stars. And uh, and that could not have happened as well. Wait, 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 wait. When you say the elements, you mean everything uh, heavier than helium? Yeah, yeah. Okay, which are called euphemistically metals 
even though you have a whole bunch of other things like nitrogen and oxygen that are obviously not metals. But everything, hydrogen and helium supposedly formed in the Big Bang and and a a smidgen of things I think like maybe lithium, maybe, if I'm remembering correctly. But everything else, all the way up to uh, uranium, 92, was supposedly formed in stars or in supernovae, the catastrophic explosions of of dying stars. And so except for those first two elements, the lightest, hydrogen and helium, everything else we see in the galaxy and in the universe and in other galaxies were supposedly formed by star formation and then explosion and then re-infecting the interstellar medium those new gas clouds condense into new stars, and so you have populations of stars, each successive population enriched in elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, and this was the accepted mainstream model up until when? This was the the mainstream model that prevails all, all the way to the present time. Ah, okay, okay. Basically. Right, so when when you see stars, fully fledged stars, which obviously had to have all these processes fully f- operating in them uh, at a time that was something like 200 million years after the uh, presumed Big Bang, then there's a moment of crisis, and that's that's the moment of crisis that we have arrived at now. I think there was a there was a object that was called. Uh, Nine nine three three one six, I think, was the galaxy. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's your item. It's your item number three in the Webb Telescope images in Chandra's section tonight of radio with pictures. Yeah, yeah, and it's some third, third, It's supposed to be supposed to be some third, thirty-five billion light years away from us, and uh, so we've gone back to a couple of hundred million years after the Big Bang, and. All of the theories that are around and that were around until this moment in time uh, says that there should should be no galaxies at that moment in the history of the universe. So we are finding galaxies where there should not have been, when when there should not have been any galaxies, any stars at all. So it's really looking very precarious for the the Judeo-Christian supported (laughs) Big Bang theory. And that's that's the way I would like to see it. I think, I think, uh, I mean, I don't want to bash the Judeo-Christians in any significant way, but in terms of their cosmology, if we're going to stick to a Judeo-Christian cosmology, that has been uh, a disaster right from the beginning, isn't it? I mean, in geology, the Earth was supposed to be only a few thousand years old, mm. and uh, rocks were found that were billions of years old that 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 was another moment of crisis in the uh, some hundred years ago or something for geologists and for uh, science for 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 the religious guys so there's been a constant continual clash between um religious points of view and uh, and so, the science so, Chandra, just let me get this clear because i know if i'm a bit confused and i kind of you know have lived with this stuff for a long time other people might even in worse condition in a in a in a big bang the universe has a point of origin model you begin with hydrogen and helium uh fiat lux god said let there be whatever and then 
as the universe expands and those ga- uh, gases condense. You begin with energy. You begin not even with hydrogen helium. You begin with the intense, undefined energy concentrating everything that was to happen subsequently in the universe. And that's, that's, that's called, just referred to as energy. And that energy has then to be made into particles. And the particles, uh, the fundamental particles are formed and hydrogen is formed and so on. And uh, eventually the, the elements, chemical elements are formed, as I said. See, one, of the, one of the questions I always had, and I guess I never had anybody to ask is, if in the Big Bang model, when you have this energy emerging creation mm. of the universe, and mm. then you have creation of the two simplest elements, mm. hydrogen, which is a proton, electron, and helium, which is a proton and a neutron and an electron. Yeah. Um, if, you, if, if you're going to wait for stars to get all the rest of the elements, mm. why in the intense inferno of that creational singularity don't you get a huge panoply of heavier elements like you get in stars later, or is that epoch so brief in this model that there's no time to form sufficient heavier elements before the expansion of the universe in that model brings things too far apart for nu- nucleosynthesis to to continue? Yeah, no, nucleosynthesis depends on very high, very high density, very high pressures inside stars. So in the in the in the expansion of the universe, and even from and in the early days, densities uh, were not high enough to have nuclear reactions taking place in in a, in a sort of purely gas phase, as it were. So you needed to make stars. You needed to make very high concentrations of these at the very high densities. And uh, and, 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 and and keep those conditions for a long time, billions of years, for, or at least hundreds of millions. For a long time, yeah. Ah. And not in a not in hundred million years or a couple of hundred million years. They had to uh, keep going for much longer than that. And so the, so the big crisis is that we have for these fully-fledged stars. Okay, so let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me get back to C, uh, here, say E-E-R-S, which I presume is a observatory or an association or whatever, and this is a catalog number, 93316, this galaxy presumed to be now 35 billion light years away, and that's yes. just as distance because, um, guys, the, the universe is not expanding. It's actually decree. It's accelerating in its expansion. It used to be thought it was going to decrease, you know, like you expand a, an explosion at some point, it stops and it begins to contract again. Well, the universe, they found out a few years ago, is not only expanding or the redshifts are increasing, but they're increasing at an accelerating rate, so they'll never come back to a big crunch. The stuff will never fall back together to a singularity, another point, to begin another cycle. Am I I correct on that? Yeah, I think so. I think think it's supposed to be just continuing to expand. Uh, with the momentum that it has at the beginning. And, and at uh, an accelerating rate, which is where the concept of dark energy came in, which Einstein, way back in the uh, teens, when he created his you know, cosmological models, he put in a fudge factor, the so-called cosmological constant, because he couldn't get his equations to balance, where the universe was either sitting still, not contracting, not expanding. And then when the Hubble data was made public, and he had an expansion. He had to put in this so-called 
cosmological constant to keep the universe expanding. Well, now we find from the uh, Hubble data, particularly on distant uh, supernovae remnants in distant galaxies, that the redshift is getting bigger the farther mm. out or the higher the redshift is. So that's been interpreted as an expansion of the expanding universe model. In other words, the, the explosion is accelerating, and that raises the question, well, where's the energy coming from to accelerate an already existing expansion? And then, so this galaxy, which they say is now 35 billion, and that's a corrected number for the Hubble constant expanding and all that, yeah. is this galaxy composed of only hydrogen stars or spectroscopically have they been able to look with the other instrumentation on web and see the spectra and see that it's already got a good uh, mixture of so-called heavier elements or metals among the hydrogen which means it's got to be a mature galaxy back at a time when nothing else but hydrogen and helium should exist well, I think I think the latter is likely to be the case. I mean, that has not been published in a in, in a scientific journal yet, but I suspect that it was it is a fully fledged galaxy, pretty close to what our galaxy looks like and our galaxy is at the present time, pretty close to what uh, the galaxy like Andromeda is. I think it's a fully fledged galaxy with with uh, the full complement of chemical elements. Which means uh, if it's like us and it's at the beginning within a couple hundred million years of the origin of the universe in the Big Bang model, it can't exist. But it does exist. Therefore, the model has to be wrong. That's exactly what I'm going to tell you. That I think the, the model has been disproved oh. decisively from the very first uh, data that has emerged from the James Webb Telescope, and even earlier than that, from the, the, the last sort of uh, observations that were made about two or three years ago with the Hubble Telescope, there were embarrassing signs that the Big Bang Theory was uh, was deeply is deeply flawed. So I think this has been this has been coming. It's not it's not something that astronomers have uh, had on them sort of suddenly without any warning. It's been coming for a long time. So the but, foundations but, have been laid from the latest Hubble data going back a few years. So when this new web data comes in a few days ago, I mean, come on, we're talking a revolution in days. There was already a fertile ground from which people can now say with protecting their professionalism and their egos and their priorities and their, you know, individuality well we kind of suspected this for a long time i think that's true i think i mean even even going back to the year 2000 uh jeffrey burbage fred hall and nalika wrote a book called alternative cosmologies in which they they discussed all of this as, uh, ah. as really quite a serious uh, challenge to the the Big Bang theory, and then independently of Fred and his team, Fred Hall and his team, uh, the the Nobel laureate uh, uh, Penrose has also been with along with his colleagues has been talking about uh, oscillating universes, universe uh, universes that are called conformal cosmologies, where the there is no beginning and no end, and so this has been sort of simmering in the uh, 
scientific community for a while, although it was still, and it is still really very, very unpopular because it challenges a long-held uh, belief that the universe had to start, and everything had to start with a... But wait, wait, wait. Doesn't Webb give all these screaming mainstream guys, I can hear them in the background now, doesn't give them a kind of a plausible excuse well, all our data up until this point led us in this direction, but because of the stunning engineering breakthrough of Webb, kind of like mm. when, when the 100-inch was built, um, mm. we now have such new data that we realize that the old data can fit in, but it's given us a, a, a bigger frame from which to look at it, and now we can safely adjust our models without losing face. Well, I think I mean that's one way of looking at it. But I, th I think the the, uh, the the bottom line is that the data is so fundamentally at odds with the conventional point of view that uh, I, I don't believe that you can maintain the this, the old point of view for very long. I think it's it's it's, it's really falling apart in a way that would be. Uh, Totally, a total disaster for the protagonists of the Big Bang Theory uh, before very long. I think, given another 10 years, they will be dead and buried. Wow. You think it's going to take that long? Well, I think, I think people are very resistant to change mm -hmm. their minds, isn't it? And, and for, uh, I mean, think of the, the ideas that life started on the Earth. Uh, these are still hanging on almost by by. It's the flimsiest thread. There's not a shred of evidence that life starts on the Earth. In fact, all of the, uh, the, the, the scientific evidence shows that it could not have. The improbabilities are so grotesquely wasped, wasped that it could not have happened that way. And yet the, uh, the scientific community still maintains that any evidence that, we've, that, that we get for life coming from space, life existing in space and so on, uh, is uh, has to be flawed and has to be discounted. <laughs> yeah, well, that one's going to maybe be shattered in the next few months by some really amazing data from the moon. Hey, we are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, and we're discussing an upending of kind of everything. Because if you get rid of the Big Bang model, in other words, the universe has a finite beginning, a middle, and maybe not anymore an ending because the, the expansion seems to be accelerating, then how do you explain all this new data that there are galaxies so far away, according to the uh, Doppler model, that they have to be incredibly ancient, 35 billion light years away? Well, how can they be older than the tabulation of the age of the universe and basically the same as our galaxy, as our stars here in this incredible island universe we call the Milky Way. We're going to get into all of that when we come back. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, August 21st, 2022. My guest this morning is the eminent uh, astrobiologist and cosmologist. Would you would you term yourself a cosmologist at all, Chandra? Well, I, I, I've been interested in cosmology right from the beginning of my career, but uh, most of my work has been in astrophysics, astrochemistry, and then finally, astrobiology, which I think is a subject, is a, is a discipline that we had a large part to play in, in its invention, even in the 1970s, 80s. Nobody would have dreamt of anything that could be called astrobiology. But <laughs> by, by the end of the 1970s, I think we wrote papers saying that astronomy and biology seem to be so, so in, in intimately, inextricably linked that a new new discipline has to be invented and inaugurated, and that was astrobiology. But, so that that was my career. But I've been interested in in sort of all aspects of of astronomy, cosmology, and science. Well, I think one of the criteria would be in the in the community would be: Have you ever published a paper or co-authored a paper on cosmology with anybody else? Well, yeah, on on aspects of cosmology. Well, then that in- technically makes you a cosmologist. I, I just want to, for all the purists out there who are going to, you know, scream at me, I just want to make sure when I say that Chandra is also a cosmologist and has authority to speak on this coming paradigm shift, it's because mm. you've actually published, as you're supposed to do, peer-reviewed scientific papers dealing in part with cosmology. So. Yeah, I mean, on aspects of cosmology, like the microwave background, when we had, uh, at the time that people thought the microwave background was 100% proof of, of the Big Bang universe, uh, I published papers to say that this need not be so, that there are other ways of explaining the microwave background, uh, thermalization of starlight, thermalization of, of using sort of dust and, and whiskers, microscopic whiskers of graphite and iron and so on, to essentially to generate the microwave background that was in the 1960s. Well, wasn't it Lerner, the the guy who wrote the you know, Big Bang Never Happened book, uh, who I have I've not read that book in decades, but I seem mm-hmm. to remember 
and that's where my memory gets fuzzy, that he proposed that the microwave background was merely caused by a kind of a plasma of ionized gas around the Milky Way. And with the telescopes, the microwave telescopes looking through that gas, they were thinking that this close by kind of bubble around the Milky Way was in fact at billions of light years distance. And they were simply misapprehending where the microwave uh, microwaves were, were coming from. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think our, our position on the micro background was that if you if you take starlight in even in our galaxy or in between galaxies, right, the the, the visible optical radiation from stars, right, and if you thermalize that, if you if you have a system okay, you have to of, you have to define what thermalize means for thermalize means put put absorbers, black body absorbers that absorb neutrally. Oh, you put or, stuff in, in the, between the galaxies or in between the stars yeah, that will absorb yeah, the starlight. Yeah, and the temperature that, that, that those, those bodies oh, will take. Oh, I see. Degrees, precisely 2.7 degrees. So, so, it, so basically you're warming up what would be dead cold stuff by means of starlight. Starlight, yeah. Almost and, incredible number of stars, i.e. in galaxies and all that. Yeah, and yeah, then the and microwave space. telescopes are looking at this warm, slightly warm, because three degrees above absolute zero is not exactly warm. The mark in space. Yeah. So you're looking at that with your microwave telescopes, and they interpreted that thermalized, meaning warmed up stuff, matter, between the stars as actually the echo, the Big Bang, supposedly 13 plus billion light years beyond that stuff. Yeah, so we challenged that, and it wasn't a very popular challenge. For many, for many years, we've been publishing papers saying that there's, uh, there are alternatives. Well, 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 how do the numbers work out? Because I would think you'd have to have a lot of intergalactic matter that could be warmed up that would do this. It, has, it can't be atoms. It's got to be little it's solid be chunks, done. right? It's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be particles of dust and right, and right. Debris. And if you if you, if you think of putting a, uh, a speck of coal into the middle of the galaxy and in, in between stars, that takes up a temperature of precisely two point seven degrees. Right. It's an amazing coincidence. But don't you need enough of those little specks to account for the intensity of the radiation that yeah, the microwave there's plenty of that because there's about, uh, or you, you can put a large fraction of the carbon and the oxygen and so on in the form of dust. I mean, dust makes up something like a percent of the the mass of the galaxy. So, so it, it is thermalization of the uh, high high energy, high grade radiation from stars. Uh, degrading that into the microwave spectrum. So how would you tell with observations, again, with microwave telescopes, like mm. the one in the Atacama Desert, ALMA, I think, and there's a whole bunch of others now, even even conventional radio telescopes can listen in this microwave band, but they're not, they're not tuned to do that. They're not optimized. Mm. How mm. would you tell the between dust between the stars in the Milky Way, even in our own spiral arm, and dust between galaxies uh, half a billion light years away, like in, in Virgo. How can you see the difference? I think you can, you can, you're, essentially you cannot see the difference. It's, it's the same same radiation, same wavelengths, and uh, and you see the. Uh, uh, well, what I say, tell the difference. In other words, how can you tell how far away the dust is that you're picking up 
as opposed to really distant sources. Does the foreground dust in the Milky Way in our spiral arm completely mm. like a cloudy day give you the illusion that it's at cosmological distances where, in fact, it's almost next door in terms of galactic uh, distance? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's the fact that it's essentially optically thick. I mean, as you said, it's like a, a cloudy day with, uh, with the, where, mm. where the radiation is. You cannot say where it comes from, but it's... Uh, it has the same energy density as the microwave background. And we, and, the, and, and, and we know now from red giants and red supergiants like Betelgeuse, mm. when, when a star dies and expands into the red giant phase, mm. it loses a lot of material from the outer edges, the envelope, and most yeah. of that is condensable dust particles. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And somehow it gets into the form of of long whiskers and radiation from these whiskers is what we reckon the microwave background is largely com comprised of. It's radiation from dust that absorbs starlight, visible starlight, wow. and re-emits in the uh, uh, in, at radio at very long wavelengths. And that, I mean that was the model, but I, I think there would be also if there was a sort of Big Bang event, or not a, not a, not a unique Big Bang event, but if there's an energetic event in uh, uh, in an early phase of this present um, oscillation, then, then that would also contribute to a microwave background. So a microwave background could have a very complex mixture of sources. And it would be very hard to tell the difference between the various sources. Yeah, yeah, it, it's all intermingled in a way that it would be completely uh, difficult to disentangle. Hmm. So that brings us very elegantly to when, when, when you know, Fred Hoyle, your guy, and Narlicker were mm. putting together their initial steady-state model. I mm. seem to remember that the way that Hoyle explained the expansion of the universe is that he literally had new atoms, hydrogen popping into existence out of nowhere uh, or out <laughs> yeah, of yeah. virtual space, as we would term it now, at yeah. a certain rate that would be equivalent to the expansion rate of the observable universe in the form of the recessional velocities of the distant galaxies. But that, mm. Im that implied that the universe was blowing up like a bubble with the pressure of material inside it, whereas the current idea, I think, is that space itself is being created and is expanding. And so the matter within the bubble is not what determines the expansion rate. And if I'm wrong about that, please tell me. No, I think, I think you're right. I, mean, I think the old, the, the original model of the Big Bang, um, sorry, of the steady state uh, universe is not uh, considered to be valid anymore in view of, in, in the light of all the data that has come to into existence in the last uh, 20 30 years or so so i think the um, the, uh, the 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 models that are being discussed by Roger Penrose and so on uh, the oscillating universes the universe models i think they are considered to be much more likely uh, a much more likely alternative to a unique big bang event so, in other words, instead of having one bang and everything expands, and for some still mysterious reason, the expansion is accelerating. That's where the dark energy, the unknown 
mysterious energy comes in, right? Mm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's 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 the idea that is sort of coming to the fore now. That uh, so you that, have so so in that model you had one point of origin. Uh, I ergo the Judeo-Christian model, and yeah, it expands yeah. forever. And if it accelerates forever, that's also okay. It used to be thought that it would expand to a certain point, and then it would fall back because the energy would be, you know, like throwing a ball in the air. It goes up so high, and then it comes back down. Well, the universe mm. would expand to a certain point, and then it would reverse, and it would begin to collapse, and then it would end in what they called the big crunch. Big crunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but now we know from observation that this, quote, expansion is not only there, but it's accelerating and even if you don't interpret it as an expansion, there still is something weird happening with all these spectra in a systematic fashion. We'll get to that in a minute. But that introduced the idea that maybe the the Big Bang was only one of many bangs, meaning a cyclic universe where you have bang, crunch, bang, crunch, bang, crunch. Yeah. And yeah. now because of the dark energy accelerating model – that cyclic model doesn't seem to work, which takes us to what are we left with? And should we go to your first image, item number one, in your items tonight in Radio with Pictures? Mm, yeah, I think so. I, mean, I think the oscillating universe where the, the cycle of oscillation is, uh, is 13 point whatever billion years or something, that, that, that seems to be the, the model that is coming to the fore now with uh, – all of the new data that uh, we are accumulating from James Webb and now, wait, wait, wait. now you really lost me because up until the discovery of the acceleration of the of the bang of the of the red shifts, hmm. the idea that you could have a collapse and a crunch and then another expansion and it would oscillate like a like basically a spring, like one of those old uh, slinky toys where it hmm. goes back and forth, back and forth. But if you've got observations that say that everything at the edge of the observable universe with the best te technology we have now is ex continued to accelerate, how do you get a cyclic model out of a one-way accelerating universe? Oh, no, that acceleration wouldn't continue forever. I mean, there's a phase of acceleration that we are witnessing now, and, and that acceleration then would uh, – would slow down and it would be a de deceleration and you would get the, the kind of the wavy pattern that you have in, in those diagrams of Penzias and not Penzias, Roger Penrose and, uh, and Nalico. Right. So that's your top graph in the in uh, image number one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that, then that's, image that's... number number two, which is uh, Hoyle and Burbage, is the cyclic where it goes back and forth, back and forth. Why yeah, is the yeah. why is the first one a, a series of larger expansions, contractions, and the second one a kind of a steady state, comp, uh, you know, steady cycle? That I don't. I, I yeah, I, I would prefer the, uh, the 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 one on the bottom, but I mean the the models that have been worked out by Turok and Penrose. They they seem to uh, go for the uh, for a model where the uh, 
And this is sort of almost an expanding universe in a different model, isn't it? It's an oscillating, expanding universe. Yeah, with with the with the phasing, the cycle getting longer and longer, longer and longer. So, yeah. what changes the phasing? What in their models and their equations says, "Wait a minute, it isn't steady state." You know, bang collapse, bang collapse, bang collapse. It's bang expansion collapse. Bang, I, 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 longer yeah, I, expansion collapse. Yeah, I think we're, we, uh, as far as the observations are concerned, the astronomical observations, we're just looking at one of those cycles. So, uh, so what happens in the subsequent cycles is just uh, theory and speculation. And there's and no that. way to know because you can't observe from the other cycle unless you, you can <laughs> no, look. You can't. Hang on, hang on. If you can look at the past, in other yes. words, if you have big enough telescopes. Maybe not web, maybe something a mile across. If you can imagine a mirror phased array a mile across, and you can look hundreds of billions of light years in our universe out, will you see remnants of a previous cycle? And will that tell you, give you data on the length of succeeding cycles or earlier well, cycles? Think, yeah, in principle, that should be possible. I think that's not to be not there yet, but that should be possible. So until that is a feasible experimental observational uh, criterion, I think we have to essentially. Um, I, I would prefer this, the, the the figure of Nalika and uh, Burbage and Hoyle because that that depends on on pr present day evidence. And in other words, the assumption of mediocrity that the cycle you're in and observing is not any more unusual than any other cycle. Yeah, that's exactly would be my preference, and uh, we cannot. I think. But that's a preference. It's not science, right? It's not. It's not science. We, we don't know. And no. see, all right. Do we have any idea? Have you done some back of the envelope stuff to say how big a telescope we would need to see evidence? of previous cycles, and does anything survive the big crunch of a previous cycle to be a leftover relic of a previous cycle? I don't know. I think the present generation of telescopes uh, fall short of, of fulfilling that criterion by a very long way. So I, 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 I would By how much? By how much? No, I'm serious. <laughs> by how much? Because it's only technology. It's only technology. Maybe, maybe it's twice or thrice, three times the. That's all. Yeah. Holy so. cow! Then Musk can launch the next one, and it won't have to be folded up like a complicated ten billion dollar piece of origami. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's possible that all this would happen in within the next, uh, I don't know, hundred years. Or something. No, no, ten years, ten years, ten years maybe, maybe less. Remember, maybe the less. curve is accelerating. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It, it's Moore's law on steroids. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I think we are moving very fast in terms of uh, probing the universe in so many different ways, isn't it? And uh, the, but the big challenge is to keep an open mind and not be locked into the uh, the old tired paradigms that are already sort of almost creaking. <laughs> Well, what was it Max Planck said so elegantly? And because we're only on broadcast station and we can edit that out, 
I'm going to paraphrase what he said when asked, how does science make progress? And he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing now, well, the only way it makes progress is when all the old farts die. Yeah, I think I think that is true. I mean, the the the, the progress in science, if you look at the progress in science in the last uh, few hundred years, it started in the so-called Age of Enlightenment in in Europe, which mm. was in the 17th century, right, 1600s, and it started because there was so much superstition, witchcraft, and witches were being burnt and so on. Uh, so this was happening all through Europe, and so the the, the, the age of enlightenment led to uh, the, the start of, the, for, for instance, of academies. The French Academy was the first academy to start. I think it was in 1635 or something. Then in London, the Royal Society started in 16. 1660, and the the mission statement for these uh, uh, academies was to essentially to stick to facts, to stick to experimental facts, and to uh, and to ignore all of the the mythology that went before them. Well, aren't so, we talking about the creation, like the Royal Society, and wasn't that under uh, under Queen Elizabeth? Yeah, under one of the Charles. Oh, oh no, Queen Victoria, I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Queen, it, it got it got underway with Queen Victoria, but it, it started even before that. It started in 1660, but the French Academy came earlier. In, in really, okay. Yeah, French Academy is the oldest oldest uh, scientific academy that started in the so-called Age of Enlightenment in Europe, right? Hmm. And that was supposed to be uh, uh, a big step forward in in uh, respecting facts. And respecting the results of experiments and, and sort of ditching witchcraft and, and all this sort of stuff. And I think we've come back full circle now to to the witchcraft business because we we don't we don't respect experiments, we ignore experiments, we classify the results of experiments. Well, remember what Kelly and Conway said standing on the White House driveway. Well, there are alternative facts. What? Yeah, yeah. There are no alternative facts. Facts are facts, and facts are unique, isn't it? And well, I used to think so, but uh, the last yeah. five years has been one hell of a. Okay, yeah. let me. Hey, I, Richard. I, yeah, yeah. Who's this? Ron? Oh, this, yeah, it's Ron. Ah, oh, Ron Gerbron. He's uh, he's uh, yeah, uh, Chandra. I, I he's our he's our resident generalist. Let me introduce you properly. Yeah. And a general mm. Hi, Chandra. We've, hi, hi. Yeah, we talked before. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just had a, I just had a question, which you were nibbling, starting to nibble at the edges of. Uh, either one of you, uh, two questions. Question one: Either one of you define a fact. Oh. And the second question is: Why aren't you talking about dimensions? Because I can visualize uh, from Chandra's little charts. Uh, I can visualize. I can visualize a way out of that very easily, but. Uh, if you stick to one perspective, you know, like you're locked in one of those stainless steel frames that point your face in one direction and you can't move it. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's. I see I see lots of outs for this. I mean, none of this sounds surprising so far, but you know, go ahead define a fact. You know, because that's the uh, crux of the, everything going yeah. back to the witch burnings. Yeah, but a, a fact I think is an empirical experimental result. 
that uh, gives you a statement about the universe that is incontrovertible, right? And for well, instance, the Earth no, being, being, uh, being round and not flat, and, and that is a fact, okay? Uh, okay. Uh, okay, so it's, it has limits. Structure, you're saying uh, a fact is, a, is an acknowledgement of structural limits of some sort? Yeah, well, they, they, there are limits to everything, isn't it? But, I mean, the fa a fact is uh, uh, defined as, uh, as something, a statement that is, is beyond controversy. And if you make a statement like the, um, like the Earth is, is flat, that is false, because it's been experiments have shown that the Earth is not flat. Uh, I mean, that's a very simple, ex simple example, but... Uh, uh, and I would embrace it, but I know a few. I know a few flat earthers, and they're, they're <laughs> astonishingly obdurate when you. Yeah. If yeah, uh, you left, you've met them. You've met them too. It's amazing how resourceful they yeah, are. They're, they're, they're incredibly resistant to 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 the true nature of the universe and to. Well, I, I think in part, gentlemen, it's because we don't teach, and I really want to grapple with this on a show, Chandra, and maybe I want you to be part of it. I've been trying okay. to get an epistemologist. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a colleague who used to work uh, with me very distantly at Goddard, the Goddard Space Flight Center, mm -hmm. and he's had some medical issues, and so we've had to defer bringing him on. But I think mm -hmm. one of the problems in our society today is people are not taught in school at any age, how do we know what we know? What is reality based on? How do yeah. you experimentally define a fact from fiction and yeah. why do some apparent facts over time seem to change? And some people interpret that as, oh, it was always just a political opinion all along. And, you know, we, they just changed their mind or they're just suppressing the old reality and selling us a new reality, which means they don't understand the progress of science, which, as my dear friend uh, Isaac Asimov used to say, is a series of approximations in search mm. of more precision. Yeah, I think the I think the, the the real trouble is that we don't in our schools teach history, we don't teach philosophy, we don't teach epistemology, isn't it? I mean, we are just essentially told things that we are supposed to accept because uh, an important person tells us, or a powerful person tells us that this is the way the world is. And that, that's that's been the case for nearly a few hundred years now. And as I said, from the time of the, the formation of the Royal Society, the French Academy well, and so on. I don't know if it's a few hundred years because I grew up in the educational system, the public school system. I started out in Catholic school, which was, you mm -hmm. know, it had its benefits and had its, uh, you know, downside. But yeah. even, even in public school, the idea of thinking, how do you figure things out? up until relatively recently, was part of the curriculum. It wasn't just regurgitating facts. It was how did you get to the facts you're supposed to memorize and regurgitate, and there was a process taught, and that process is completely gone by the board now. People are not taught. Oh, it's not how taught. It's not taught anymore. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got grandchildren who's going, who go to sort of high school and so on, and, and they're not – they're taught facts – so-called facts 
but not the way that these facts are ascertained or verified. Uh, so the process is lost. See, one of Hoagland's laws, and I had to create some because I had stiff competition with mm. Arthur and Isaac and Heinlein mm. and all that. So mm. the first, first of Hoagland's laws is all science is approximate. Mm. And most people think science is exact. Somehow no. they got the misimpression that if it's, if it's said to be science, it's absolutely 100% gold-plated truth. And to me, I've always thought of science as a series of approximations getting closer to truth, but maybe never arriving because we always get better data. We always get better yeah, instruments. Yeah, we always a, get better telescopes. Mm, and we're, yeah, at the, a, we're at the bottom yeah. of the hour, gentlemen. So let me put you on pause. My guest this morning uh, is uh, uh, Chandrawik Rama Singh, our esteemed colleague from the British Isles, and Ron Germbron, our resident generalist, has joined the conversation. And we're going to continue going back and forth because I want to talk about the whole new paradigm shift that Chandra has been intimately immersed in, which is the search for ultimate, absolutely irrevocable truth at a society-wide level that life is not unique to planet Earth, to this speck of cosmic dust, but in fact pervades the universe that we can see and even the parts, because of our limited telescopes, we can't see yet. And that raises the question, how did it all arise? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
and welcome back everyone on this Sunday night, grading soon within the next half hour into Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests this morning are Dr. Chandrarik Singh, and we've been joined by Ron Gerbron, member of our Enterprise Mission Imaging Team, who spends hundreds and hundreds of hours weekly combing the NASA databases, particularly the uh, rovers on Mars currently, finding stunning objects over and over again, replicate, duplicate data, overwhelmingly, obviously demonstrating that at least one, if not multiple ancient civilizations existed on Mars, and yet not one member of mainstream science seems willing to look at the data and simply say, it's there. Chandra, why is that? I think the the idea that life exists outside of the Earth has been completely taboo for pretty close to a few hundred years. I think uh, the Copernican Revolution put the Earth in its place in relation to other planets in the solar system and so on. But the, the more important revolution that still has to be accomplished is to say that life is not centered on the Earth. This, is, this has been a real big problem for science and for astronomy for pretty close to 500 years now since the, the, the first part of the Copernican Revolution when the Earth was demoted from its physical centrality, I think the idea that life on Earth is unique to the Earth is also completely flawed and has to be, has to be rejected and to be thrown out. And evidence, as you said, is growing by the day to show that this is inevitable, that this has to be accepted, that there's ample evidence for, for life being everywhere. So the, the old story of life starting on the Earth and being confined to the earth is so seriously flawed and so seriously devoid of any experimental evidence that I think it's something that science has to has to come to terms with. Okay, before I we get into the, before we get into the details of this, I want to go back to Ron's other question because we didn't address the other question. What was it, Ron? Dimensions. Yeah. Dimensions. How, I think that's in the unrecognized energy source here. I think things are switching back and forth from one to another, and we're just limited in our perception. Kendra? Well, I don't know. I think I think I would uh, I would pass on that. I I wouldn't dispute that <laughs> as a possible as a possibility. Well, I, haven't, I haven't given it a lot of thought, so uh, maybe that's, that's okay. the case. Well, yeah, go get Roger Penrose. He likes crazy ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that is certainly we cannot truly talk about <laughs> and, and so on. But I, I haven't worked on it. I haven't thought about it too much. So I would uh, rather not make any comment that uh, uh, either supports it or, or, or sort of disputes it. Well, I think. I think. Do you have a Do you have a superficial premise and uh, that uh, you're ready to work on when you get a chance that has anything to do with the existence of dimension. I'm using dimension in the sort of street level uh, sense, you know, like this is the dimension we're in 
you know, as opposed to an alternate dimension where things are slightly different. You know, not, yeah, well, I'm not talking about the structure. I have tended to right through my career to be an empiricist, and I, I think there are three dimensions. There are possibly four dimensions if you keep time. And um, whether there are other dimensions in which uh, uh, life can exist and whether this is a, a feasible proposition to experiment upon and to, to, to test empirically, I have not really given too much thought on that. So. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I probably misspoke. How about uh, alternate universe? Is that a better term? <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, these are, these are ideas that are around and they are not, uh, uh, there's no empirical support either one way or another to say that they exist or they do not exist. So I think I would stick to, in my own career, and because time is limited and life is short and so on, I have always talked to, to matters that could be empirically tested here and now. And the question whether there is life on Mars, whether there is life uh, outside of the Earth and so on, these are testable propositions. And so I think I would be more comfortable talking about these mm. than, uh, than unknown dimensions that are still to be explored. You're going to really want to hear and look at uh, next Sunday night show where I okay. tackle for three hours the what Artemis and the two unmanned missions can discover on the moon. Okay. Because there's extraordinary stunning evidence that NASA has been vigorously suppressing for over half a century. Oh, I fully believe that. I think there's a lot of data that has not been. Oh, wait, really you see. I'm going to try to assemble not all of it because there's far too much for one show, but I'm going to spend, see, I, I actually did a three hour web backgrounder mm. a few weeks ago, and I'm going to do the same thing for Artemis showing what there is for NASA to tell us about if politically they are mature enough now to realize the time has come. And if they don't do it, then Musk is going to, you know, whip them in the, you know what, because he's going to go separate and show us everything that's there live on global television. So, yeah, I, I think the uh, monopoly that, uh, that government organizations like NASA have is, is regrettable because I think this is something that should not have happened in science, should not have happened. Well, remember, uh, it wasn't supposed to originally happen. If you look forward from the 1950s, space yeah. was going to be developed by companies, consortiums, independent corporations. The first trip to the moon, remember Destination Moon? Uh, yes. was a private consortium of, of uh, you know, back then it was millionaires, now it'd be billionaires, yeah, yeah. Uh, developing a nuclear rocket to take humans to the moon for the first time uh, in a nuclear-powered spaceship in the 1950s. Yeah. This was, you know, one of my old friends who's now gone, of course, Chesley Bonstell, was the yeah. illustrator of this stunning movie. Um, okay. And now history is kind of closing the loop where the next phase – which was artificially injected by the Cold War. That's why we got a government space agency. Mm. Uh, the next phase is going to be the whole private expansion of private enterprise. I mean, on the Artemis mission, they're literally deploying 13 CubeSats en route into lunar orbit, and all mm. the two or three of them are private enterprise missions, private yeah, companies. I think that, that's really a, a remarkable development that should be welcomed because the 
the stranglehold that has been really a, a crippling factor in the um, in the progress of science is is really quite. And it's in really the progress of scientific development and in social development, if the human race realized it was not alone, that it had an extraordinary history of intelligent life around us, with us, of us before, and that life itself did not originate, which started in the 50s as a spark in a, in a chemistry lab of acetylene and other weird gases by Stanley Miller – and they oh, kept yeah. looking for the mythical, you know, little tide pool on Earth where uh, life yeah. formed. We would yeah, be in a whole different space. Yeah. yeah, those ideas are so deeply flawed that to think that in, in 2022, they're still being brandished and maintained and, and championed by respectable guys, by academies around the world. I think, I think it's almost spelling the end of science. If this is the kind of situation that's going to prevail for the next 50 years. Well, it won't. It, it, it won't. It won't. And this is what I wanted to come to. This is why I wanted to talk to you about Webb. As soon as I saw that Webb was working, all $10 mm. billion of incredibly expensive complex origami toy, mm. all was working. My mm. first thought, really, literally my first thought was, oh, my God, now, even if they don't want to, we, the people, and there's a structure that NASA set up, God bless them. We, the people, can use Webb to prove Chandra's theory that life is interstellar and intergalactic and beyond and only came to Earth because it landed in the right garden at the right time to flourish. Yeah, and the Earth was one of trillions of places. Exactly. So start us at the beginning. Tell us how Webb can finally, at the general level of the mainstream community and the general public on the planet, how it can prove your panspermia model is ultimately 100% correct. Well, I think, I think one, one, one uh, prediction of our, of our panspermia model was much closer to Earth. It was to, was to demonstrate and to show that there is a continuing inflow of biological material, of, of genetic material, of viruses and bacteria that can lead to evolution, can lead to superhumans even, and so on. And, and this uh, was something that we wanted to establish empirically, experimentally, in the late 1990s. And Fred Hoyle approached this all the space agencies in Western Europe and in Britain and so on, and they said, nothing doing. We, we don't want to engage in this kind of stupid project. So in the event, we went to India, and India had a really flourishing space industry. They had the uh, Indian Space Research Organization, and they did the first experiments with us to show that there's a, a steady flow into the Earth of uh, incoming well, wait, 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 hang on, hold it. If that happened... How come we, meaning the general population of Earth, don't know about it? Well, it's been published in peer-reviewed journals. It's been, it's been announced at conferences in San Diego in 2001. But it goes under the radar very quickly. I mean, for, for, a, for a couple of days, it becomes news. And then, then the people who are against this idea say that, oh, this stuff must be contaminant. 
they must have contaminated their their, their collections from the uh, stratosphere and so on. So that was that was a perennial problem from the 2000 uh, from 2000 to the present day. And a few years ago, I think the uh, the Russian uh, Russians reported the discovery at the now just way above the stratosphere on the international space they station they discovered microbes living algae living on the exterior of the space station and that is being ignored and shot down and suppressed totally ignored totally ignored by why the, how how is what is the power to basically suppress a fundamental systemic paradigm breakthrough so religiously and i use that term specifically <laughs> For decades, yeah. where where is this power emotion from? No, 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 no. Emotions. I'm talking. I'm talking technically in the journals at the level of publication. So I think journals. So are, journals are, no, you're uh, talking about the mindset. I'm talking about how is it procedurally no. done? How? I think it's, how because it's, people are basically neutral. People desperately want to know they're not alone. Otherwise, yeah, why yeah. would all these movies and all these books and comic books and the whole feel of science fiction yeah, and yeah. Temp- why would all that be burgeoning and making people billions and billions and billions of dollars? And the science underpinning that is totally ignored and ghettoized. And everybody thinks because NASA says it again and again, we're the only life in the universe that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that statement that we have the only life in the universe is, is, the dominant statement that has been shouted from the rooftops, and it's, it's, I mean, I don't like to use the word deep state, but it's something that is, <laughs> is, yeah. is, is transnational. But it's got to be a deep state that's exactly trans, it's got to be planetary. There's got to be a committee somewhere that basically says jump and everybody else jumps and nobody. It's like my my mystery that I laid out last night, Ron, that you did not hear. I I spent a lot of time talking about how are all the people at JPL looking at these stunning artifacts and all the rover images. Not one of them does an Edward Snowden takes a thumb drive and holds a press conference and says, look, guys, you've been lied to. Not one. I think I think Richard. I think it's a religious thing. I'm, I hate to come back to religion, but I think it's it's deeply rooted in our culture in the, in, in the on in the world on the world stage certainly that Judeo, the Judeo Christian paradigm has to prevail. Earth is unique, and we are essentially products of the Earth, and no other planet can produce anything like us. And that's, I think, so deeply rooted in a religious uh, context that it's, uh, it surfaces every, every time that there's a contrary discovery or conflicting discovery. This uh, comes as a sort of deep state imposition on the whole of the... Of, of, Chandra, uh, I think you're exactly right. But see, you're I describing, mean, I, guys... Religion's the right on, word. Hang on. You're, yeah. you're, describing, yeah. you're describing a mindset... But there's always exceptions. There's always rogues and revolutionaries. You and I are rogues and and revolutionaries. But I'm talking at the institutional level. In other words, given that Hollywood has made uncountless trillions of dollars off selling the idea of extraterrestrials, you'd think some scientific institution would figure out this is their gold card if they just monetize their discovery that we're not alone and nobody's yeah. doing it. Where is yeah, the power to where yeah. is the power to suppress the normal greedy 
instinct for commerce and capitalism coming from to not capitalize in science on the reality that underlies all the science fiction, which is demonstrably making some people extremely rich. Rich, I think, Richard, because oh, go ahead, Chandra. I'm sorry. No, I think it's the the academies have have a lot to answer for. And as I told you earlier in our program, I mean the the the, the beginning of beginnings of science as we understand it or we think it should be started in 1660 with the formation of the uh, of the uh, what's it called the French Academy of Sciences, right, mm-hmm. in Paris, and then 30 or 40 years after that, the Royal Society, and these were were custodians of science, of empirical methods, of empirical science. And now they are custodians of, of falsehood, of, of, of wrong theories. They maintain the wrong theory against all the odds. And so I think the academies have a lot to answer for what, uh, what's happening now. It's the National Academy of Sciences in the US, the Royal Society, the French Academy, and so on. So I think we've got to turn to another a system that is above these academies to uh, essentially say that the academies are rubbish and that, that they should really uh, <laughs> listen, listen to us. Well, you're, you're not mincing words tonight. Yeah. No, no. Okay, so if you're proposing another institution, another layer, another liberation of of science, what form does it take? What can we do to create it, to help it, to foster it, to give it a kick in the seat of the pants? What breakthrough does we, do we need to focus on to basically upend the current suppressive paradigm to where the reality yeah. facts are acknowledged? I think we have to democratize science. I think we've got to bring it down to the people to decide who are the genuine scientists, who are the people who are really making the important breakthroughs, and what are the issues that we are essentially grappling with. And as soon as they realize that the issues that, they are, that the, these institutions and these, these great uh, organizations, the deep state, uh, the, the, these are essentially organizations that are championing and ailing theory of our existence in the universe, uh, presenting us as being supreme, presenting humans as being the center of the universe and, and, and nothing else existing apart from us, I think that has to be recognized as being totally false and, and disputed at, at the level, of, at the grassroots level. We've got to, I think we've got to go back to the old democracy that was invented in, in ancient Greece in the fifth century BC. Every person has to have a have ha, has to have a say in whether uh, what's happening in science is uh, is valid or not valid. Well, we and have they, a kind of tradition here. I, I started this, you know, like five six years ago, when Art Bell said, "Wouldn't you like to do your own show?" <clears throat> and I said, "Yeah, really." Anyway, here we are, years later. I put citizen scientists on all the time, Chandra, people yeah. who are just just ordinary people. And I've expanded it now to other disciplines like citizen historians, because yeah, frankly, yeah, yeah. they're doing much more real science than the yeah. quote so-called scientists. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it has to be brought down to the level of the populace of people. People have to decide what the the scientific experiments should be, whether we should be looking for life on Mars, whether we should be looking for life elsewhere in the universe, 
and whether we should deploy the James Webb Telescope to look for signatures of life. I think one of, one of the things that the James Webb Telescope would, would show us, uh, if, we, if it is allowed to show this data, is the universality of biological signatures that go back all the way to 200 million years after this sort of fictitious Big Bang that is supposed to have taken place. And if you're finding not just stars and galaxies, but if you're finding signatures of life as far back as that, then the game is up. I think we've got to, we've got to allow these guys to just go home and, and wither away in their, in their ignorance. Yeah, but will they go home and wither away because they get all the money? Yeah, that's that's the big problem because because even the way that science is conducted, apart from the academies and so on, is through through grants that are given by by organisations like NASA and the, um, the all the big organisations in the UK that are doling out money for for science, and these are given for projects that they approve. Not for not for pursuing science for its own sake, or for finding the truth about anything. Hmm. Okay. So I want to go back to square one because I we've got you know a little over an hour to go through some details here, and that's what I like to do: drill down mm. into details. Begin mm. with all the new members of our audience have not heard you. Begin with the idea of how life can be found between the stars, interstellar organics, and the kind of observations that you did, that you made use of, and then bring in how Webb can be a stunning quantum leap in that direction, in that confirmation. Yeah. I, the, 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 the starting point of my scientific career was to try to understand the nature of cosmic dust. And if you look at the night sky... Uh, if you look at the Milky Way on a clear night, on a dark night, you see the band of stars that is essentially seeing our galaxy sort of sideways, right, through the... Edge on, edge on. Edge on. And then in between the, the great star formation stars and the constellations, you see vast clouds of dark matter, dark material. That's not dark matter in the way that cosmologists right, regard that. Right. But there are huge clouds of dust that essentially block out. Well, the when light. you when you look at really deep photographs, meaning photographs on the web all over with mm. countless numbers of stars, you'll see areas in the galaxy where there appear to be far fewer. They appear black, and almost some of them are so yeah. dark that there are no stars at all. Those are not regions without stars. Those are regions where the dust between us and those stars is so thick. It's literally absorbing all the light and making them appear dark, but that's the interstellar medium, the interstellar dust clouds that you focused on. That's right, yeah. And it's just that they're just blocking the light from distant stars. Yep. And that's, that's, that's what these dust clouds are, these dark clouds are. So at the time that I started my research in Cambridge in the 1960s, the people had very little knowledge of what the dust was made of, what the dark cloud was, dark clouds in, in the galaxy were made of. Uh, it was believed by a group of dust astronomers that there were just little flecks of, of of ice, tiny ice grains, like in the uh, like the particles that you find in the cumulus clouds of the Earth's upper atmosphere, or so, or or in, or in comets. Or in comets, yeah. 
So then the McCormacks came a little afterwards in our, right. in our uh, exploration, but we began. I began exploring the nature of uh, well, 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 when, when did Fred uh, Hoyle, uh, not Fred Hoyle, uh, Hubble, uh, Whipple, Fred Whipple at Smithsonian, when did he propose his you know, snowball, dusty, dirty snowball model that, for comics. Well, he, he proposed in, in the 1950s, already in the sort of mid-1950s, there was this well-established or well-recognized model of a comet, which was a, a dirty snowball. And uh, and and Fred Ripple said that the, the reason that you have this huge tail of uh, debris of, of the gas tail and the dust tail emerging when this comet came close enough to the sun was that the ice was evaporating. The ice was being heated by the sunlight and along with the, the evaporating gases uh, flowed out also the dust and the debris that were entrained in, in inside the comet. So that was the, 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 the dirty uh, snowball model of the, of the comet. Uh, but I mean, I'll come back. To, I'll come to that in a minute. But I think the first thing that we did was not to study the comets, but to study the interstellar dust. And we, I came to the conclusion that dust had to be largely carbonaceous. They were not made of ice crystals, and that was absolutely definite. And I went to all the conferences in the U.S. in the 1960s and, and made this statement and uh, became very unpopular for a while. But eventually, people agreed that the the dust had to be non-ice, dust in space, the, the dark clouds in, in the galaxy, had to be made of uh, largely carbonaceous dust, microscopic what, what, dust. What, Was this spectral infrared information primarily? Yeah, it was spectral information, first of all in the ultraviolet, and then with the, with the introduction of infrared telescopes in the 1970s, uh, a really important breakthrough happened because we had predicted that if the dust, if this organic or carbonaceous dust was anything like living material or biology or bacteria or viruses, it should have a certain signature, certain spectral appearance, right, in the, in the spectrum. And we made that prediction before the observations, astronomical observations available. So we published a spectrum saying that this, if life is everywhere in the galaxy and if life is not unique to the Earth, this is what we should find. And all of the telescope, uh, all people who allotted telescope time in the U.S., in Europe, refused to, to, to undertake to do this project because they thought it was a crazy project. Why should we look for life outside the Earth? Because we know there's no life outside. <laughs> right? Hey, we so, are we are at the uh, top of the hour, witching hour here in the land of enchantment. My guests this morning are uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, noted astrobiologist, and he's published papers on cosmology. I want to get that in there. And Ron Gerbron, our resident generalist, is with us with some very good questions and observations and. You know, I'm just going to vote in favor of Ron tonight because, yes, there are multiple dimensions. And in science, you prove it by means of the equations and predicting. And I'm going to introduce Chandra to a whole bunch of papers on multi-dimensions, which are incredibly predictable and now verifiable. You were on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're going to talk about how Webb can prove Chandra's model.
when we return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this now Monday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. It is the 22nd of August, 2022. 2-2-2-0-2-2. Anyway, this conversation is going to resume. Chandra, how, uh, as you looked at these specter with these early primitive UV observations of then all of infrared, what was what was the indicator that in fact we weren't looking at ice crystals or at some point I think there was a proposal for spinning iron needles, aligned yeah, um, needles yeah, yeah. like sewing yeah. needles in the middle between the stars, and then That's you focused right. on the organic signatures and what were those signatures and why in your mind and in the papers you wrote were they even then pretty definitive. Well, I think the the, uh, the carbonaceous organic signatures we had were of the bond carbon to hydrogen, carbon atom sticking to a hydrogen atom in in various configurations and uh, also linked to oxygen atoms. And in, in living systems, in biology, this material, this carbonation material is distinctly uh, it has a distinct character spectroscopically. You could look at a spectrum of a bacterium and say this is un- unquestionably a bacterium. It has certain uh, features in the in, in in the around between three and four micrometers in the infrared. And so we took bacteria in the laboratory. We had uh, students working with us, and we made spectra. We obtained spectra of bacteria in phase conditions, 
under interstellar conditions. And we obtained this spectrum and said that if we have the same spectrum discovered in interstellar space, then this is uh, clear proof of life, bacterial life being everywhere. So wait, wait, now, you're, you're, you're talking about you in the laboratory on Earth, you basically froze little microorganisms. That's right. And then yeah. against background light or illumination or whatever, you simulated yeah. interstellar observations with telescopes. You got the That's spectra. Right. And, said, yeah. and, and then you yeah. said, okay, if we see this spectral match in the interstellar dust signals for real, yes. not just little pre-organics or things like amino acids or whatever, but actual fully formed microorganisms, yeah. basically yeah. identical to microorganisms on Earth, have to be floating a thousand light years away in front of the uh, stars of, of the center of the galaxy. Exactly, exactly. But it's, we made that prediction. We made first of all, we made, made, the, made the experimental uh, observation in the laboratory and made, and made a prediction that if this stuff was all over the the, the galaxy, we should have the same signature. And then we approached the various telescopes that could have uh, uh, done this job for us. And no one in Europe, no one in the US said that they had the time available to to uh, uh, to, to, to do this program. They said, we, 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 we don't waste our time doing irrelevant uh, projects and so on. So fortunately Kendra, for us- Kendra, had, how is that possible? There's always a rogue. Think of think of Lowell. Lowell at a time when yeah. nobody was really thinking about life and canals and all that on Mars. Yeah, yeah. Put uh, his whole fortune into creating an observatory to do nothing but try to prove there was. Yeah, how come yeah. there's no body, no group, no individual iconoclast like Alan Sandage, for instance, who had time on the uh, uh, 200 inch, who just, or or, <laughs> yeah. or or what's it? Who's the, who's the uh, Who's the who's the big uh, rogue in in cosmology? Chip Chip Up, wasn't it Up? Was it Up? Yeah, yeah. Our, yeah. How yeah, come, yeah, we, how we, come we there's nobody it. like that that said, "Damn it, Chandra, this is so interesting. I'll devote some of my time because they each have dedicated time. It's like reserved time." Yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy to find some uh, anyone like that. But, but we had the the good luck that the Anglo-Australian telescope telescope, which in the year sort of 2000 was perhaps one of the best telescopes in in the world, right? And it had infrared facilities and so on. And, and Fred Hoyle had direct access to this telescope. Mm -hmm. And my brother, of all people, was an astronomer who was working. He was a professor at the University of uh, uh, National University of Australia, uh, Australian National University. Oh, that's so depressing. And that's so depressing. Did. You know why? Because you're yes. proving it's not what you know, it's who you know. You, yes, have, you had a brother. Oh, for God's sake, science depends on a brother? <laughs> well, that's, that, that's what actually happened. So we, we, we got through to, to Dahl, who was, who was in Australia, and within, within a few weeks, this experiment was done, this observation was done. We looked at the, at the furthest infrared source in our galaxy, and looked for the observational uh, evidence of a signature that we could recognize as a bacterium. And you, and and you wanted the farthest source so that over the thousands and thousands of light years, the signal yeah. would build up and build up and build up, and yeah. you detect yeah. it. 
Yeah, and that's what we found. We found a signal that uh, the, the infrared spectrum that matched exactly the spectrum that was predicted, published earlier in the scientific literature and so on. So you so, found spectrally interstellar microbes, frozen little guys yeah, floating between the stars. I mean, we didn't, we didn't isolate them. We didn't bring them to the laboratory. No, 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 no. I mean, spectrally, their signature, their yeah, spectral yeah. fingerprints matched exactly little frozen organisms That's under, right, under yeah, microscopes yeah. In, in the laboratory. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We made, a, we made a, a sort of big announcement of this. We convened a meeting uh, at the Royal Astronomical Society and had lots of people uh, assembling there. And the general reaction was, that, oh, this is very interesting. What you are finding is an assembly of molecules that just exactly mimic <laughs> the of a bacterium. Right, they have to be in the right proportions. All the organic chemicals have to be in the right proportions to mimic this uh, spectrum. And so that was well, the reaction. That, uh, talk was, about denial. It's yeah, not, not just a river in Egypt. Yeah, and then the next thing that happened was that laboratories in the U.S. and so on were just mixing organics in various proportions. And showing that if you mix the if you had the right proportions of the organics, you would get a spectrum that was really fairly close, not exactly the same as the spectrum that we found in deep in the galaxy and in the laboratory in a bacterium. And so that I mean that really essentially felt for me or announced to me and to Fred the end of science. Well, that's when we, you realize the fix was in. Yeah, that no yeah. amount of evidence would ever be sufficient to prove the theory that we had found frozen interstellar microbes, period. Yeah. No assemblage of chemicals that mimic them necessary. But the default politically, systemically in the institutions is it can't be life because basically we know that life only exists here because we're all good Christians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the next thing, uh, Richard, was that we had, within a few years of that, we had the uh, the Giotto mission to Comet Halley, right, a space mission that actually took cameras and so on to... to, that, to was, that, that was a famous European mission. European mission. And at the same time, again, my brother was involved. This is nepotism, perhaps. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was observing in Australia, uh, up to using his Anglo-Australian telescope, the, uh, the spectrum of the tail of, of Comet Halley when it came close to the sun. And what he found in the tail of Comet Halley was exactly the same as what he found in of deep course. space, a spectrum of a bacterium, right? And we published it in Nature, and exactly the same reaction. Oh, this is a, just a, a coincidental Well, wait, wait, wait. So you opened up a can of worms here because the only thing I would think, if it's at all a level playing field, which it probably isn't, that would prove your model and your brother's observation that in Halley's comet's tail, these little frozen beasties are there. Forget yeah, how they yeah. forget how they got there. They match what's in the laboratory. They're indistinguishable optically, spectrally. So okay. Yeah. So the obvious yeah. next step would be okay. We need to go out and collect physical samples. Well, guess what? Absolutely. We've Absolutely. had we've had several missions primarily from the Japanese, and yeah. there's one American mission coming back, and yeah, they've yeah. collected samples 
have they looked, have they published, or are they freaking out that they're finding microbes identical to terrestrial microbes? They are finding, uh, they're not finding microbes because they're, they've, they've, they've looked at bits of the comet or the asteroid that has not, essentially would not have had any survival microbes, but they found evidence that surprised them. Um, up to that, up to this moment in time, I think still up to about a few years ago, nobody accepted that there could be liquid water inside asteroids, carbonaceous asteroids, or comets that could be the the breeding ground for bacteria. Right? They thought these were essentially dry objects, and there's no chance of anything well, dirty, living. dirty snowballs, like like dirty snowballs. And and now they find evidence for liquid water. In, in all of these return samples, like Rigu was one Japanese uh, mission that returned a sample of a carbonaceous meteorite. Uh, there's evidence of liquid water and evidence of heat producing radioactive elements that would have maintained uh, sort of interior pools for billions of years and so on. So all of that stuff is, is coming to uh, into existence, but it's still being denied. It's been denied as just, so what? I mean, there's the story is that there was liquid water early in the history of these objects. And, uh, and uh, I mean, there's also evidence of, of fossilized bacteria everywhere turning up. Well, wasn't and, it a guy from the old Esso oil company named Nagy? who published microscopic photographs showing organized bacterial germ-like objects from meteorites, and it was completely dismissed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had him at a conference uh, in the 1980s, and he was just shouted out of court by all of the American uh, meteorists and so on. And there was also a German guy, a man called Hans D. Plug, who came up with, a, with stunning evidence of uh, organisms, fossilized organisms inside, deep inside the Murchison meteorite, one of the oldest uh, recovered meteorite samples from Australia. And all of this was just dismissed as being contaminants. And recently, a man called Richard Hoover, Richard B. Hoover, of the Marshall Space Flight uh, Center, uh, he, I mean, I'm seeing him next week, I think he's coming to Britain. Oh. He's He's found evidence that is absolutely crushing for living structures, microscopic fossils of microorganisms, diatoms, and bacteria, and cyanobacteria, and so on, inside meteorites that are 4.5 billion years old. Deathly silence on the part of the, of the meteorite. So how do we break through? Because the media worships the academies. If the academies don't say it's real, they'll never say it's real. As my old friend Kevin Sanders at, at uh, CNN, who was a science advisor there, and I, I worked with him on some things at CNN a long time ago, he said sci uh, uh, the, the networks do not, do not uh, um, uh, discover. Anything. Yeah. They, they merely coronate. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the, the academies, NASA, uh, is part of that circuit. Uh, European Space Agency is part of the circuit. I think even the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, is part of this circuit. Oh, they're all part of the same club, of course. Same club. So and, and how they, do we break through? How do I we break I, through? 
Well, how do we? What do you mean we? We're on uh, the outside. We could just keep on. No, we're we're we. There are more of us than them. They are a They're tiny subset. They are yeah. the tail wagging, you know, the Great Dane. George, I know, but, you're but they have the money, they have the media, they have uh, the media on their side, they have the journals on their now, side. Now, wait, 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 wait. You are limbing out, Chandra, the um, Kobayashi Maru no-win scenario. Okay. I, do, I do not believe in the no-win scenario. There is a way to break the logjam. We just have yeah. to. We have a very large audience worldwide. We may not yeah. be bright enough tonight to think of it, but I have a very large audience, and they're all really very, very bright, as the callers last night demonstrated uh, when I called upon them, as I had to, and Neville mm. overslept. So mm. how do we break through this logjam? Because unless we, as citizens, take control, we are literally, as Arthur used to say, on the long downhill slide to the great primeval sea. Yeah, I think that's, that's 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 the way it looks, and I think we have to take control. We have to find a way of of reversing this uh, stranglehold that we have essentially suffered for for. Okay, for so I I am I'm, I have a thought in the back of my mind, and I'm waiting to get to it till we lay proper foundation, as the lawyers say. So now talk about how Webb, with its extraordinary demonstrated capabilities, how it can be the technical astronomical breakthrough in the logjam in terms of the science. What can Webb do that nothing else up to now could do in this area? Well, I think it can it can discover evidence like it is already discovered on the cosmology, on the antiquity of the universe, on the age of the universe, that would begin to shake the confidence of even the academies and NASA and so on. Uh, but it it has to do more than that, I think, to to break the logjam on on life in the universe, intelligent life in the universe. I think something has to happen. Now, the orbiting Kepler telescope, which was launched when in uh, oh back back in nine, I believe, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, discovered uh, exoplanets. That was its mission to discover planets outside the Earth. It discovered a large number of them in our, in our close to our solar system. And the current estimates of the total in our galaxy of exo habitable exoplanets is runs into many billions, right, on the Earth. And these are separated by relatively short distances. So if there is life, if there is intelligent life, if there is viruses carrying intelligence, carrying uh, signatures of intelligence in some way, they can be easily transferred from one of these exoplanets to another. So the whole of this our galaxy, according to the results of the Kepler uh, telescope, have to be biologically connected. There's no way out of it. It's not been admitted, it's not been accepted by the establishment, but I think there's no question that our galaxy is connected intimately to other, uh, our solar system is connected to other uh, planetary um, homes in our, in our own local Milky Way system. Now, the James Webb Telescope could, could continue to produce more and more evidence of exoplanets further and further away. I think they've already found, haven't they, uh, an exoplanet with water some, uh, at, a, at a fairly great distance. It's about 1,000, 1,500 light years away, but that's nothing in the galaxy of 100,000 light years diameter. So that was kind of expected because I think Hubble had done some work, again, kind of precursor work 
that said that if we got a web-capable telescope, we would definitely see signatures like this. But see, they're looking, or they're going to look, for much more complex signatures that will look at what, what would be called the Gaia hypothesis, meaning that life on a planet changes the atmosphere so much with yes. signatures that Webb will be able to look at these signatures when the planet is against the star, when it's transiting, and yeah, spectrally yeah, yeah. will be able to say if that particular planet transiting the star might actually contain current biological life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the hope, and I think that's that's going to be real. Uh, I personally feel that hope is going to be realized on a very short time scale, because uh, the James Webb Telescope has a much bigger mirror than any of the earlier telescopes, and it has a it has a much greater power to collect uh, uh, spectral information. Twenty one feet plus in diameter. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a huge mirror. Actually, it's eight eight separate little ones. But anyway, so. Yeah. Have you looked at the roster of the first year's published observations of Webb, and is anybody out there looking at signatures of interstellar dust for what you know is there? No, I think I've I, I sort of skimmed through the stuff in, on the Internet and so on. No, I haven't seen any serious uh, statement that they would be looking for evidence of life outside the Earth. And that is the most important scientific quest that uh, is waiting. Well, don't you find that a little weird? I think it's weird. I think I'm, I've been used to that for about 20 years now. Evidence for life outside the Earth, has, as you know, has been accumulating steadily without any remission uh, for this length of time, for two, three decades. And there is deadly silence on the part of all of the scientific establishments and so on. And so uh, one has to be uh, regarded. Well, this brings us to my next proposal, which is in order for this to be the breakthrough, mm -hmm. I think axiomatically it's got to be at some institutional level. And because of the intense public interest in Webb and in NASA's self-interest to maintain high visibility and public interest in Webb, Anything coming out of the web observations is getting really big play in all kinds of media, mainstream media, yeah. television, yeah. internet, blogs, et cetera, et cetera. So NASA has set up institutionally a framework where ordinary taxpaying citizens can propose scientific observations via web. They say they're not going to discriminate by institution. You don't have to be with a major observatory and all that, and we, we can say, okay, that's just lip service. The point mm -hmm. is, given that you are at half a dozen mainstream scientific institutions and mm -hmm. could garner a very large coterie of co-authors or co-investigators of the mm -hmm. population, do mm -hmm. you plan in the next round of web proposals to formally submit to the committees a proper interstellar dust identification program to look for organic Germanic signatures. I haven't uh, worked that through in terms of uh, a practical proposal, but I will be delighted to do that. 
Although I am not as optimistic as you are, I think there would be there would be mechanisms that would come into play that would essentially filter the uh, the proposals that actually get and, to the top. And, and, and that's where the media interest in web and everything going on with web comes into play. Because if we make a big deal of this proposal, and you yes. are the guy that you are, who yes. basically wrote the book, and they turn down your proposal, we turn it from science acting stupid to science acting with corruption. And media yeah. love corruption stories. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, corruption is already there. Science, uh, but it has to be exposed. It's got to be yeah. something that anybody gives a damn about, and this people would give a damn about, given that NASA has done two critical things. They've launched Webb, which has the capability to prove you've been correct for decades. But mm. even more important politically, they've opened an office under NASA to investigate UFOs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I, think, the, I think there is movement in that direction. And we need to give and it a shove. We need to accelerate we need it. To shove. Whether that movement, whether those uh, indications that we have are really genuine or just uh, a sham, I still do not know. Even if it's a sham, we can make it real with enough public exposure and pressure and sunlight. Ron, are we missing anything? Uh, yes, I can kill all of your great arguments with two little words. Even though I agree, even though I agree with you on the necessity of it, just imagine you've given your best pitch, either one of you, to uh, an audience or an you know an, a person person of prominence that can help. Uh, you have all this evidence to show the uh, the lines that would turn out on the spectroscope if there's a biosphere on a planet when it does its yeah. transit. Everybody everybody's happy, and so they listen to all of this scratch their chin and they go, hmm, but still, it's the ultimate death argument. It's a dump switch, and it, where academics use it too. They go, okay, that takes us outside of our purview. So, you know, it's a religious argument. I have no you idea what – Ron, I have no idea what you just said, but still what? The way the, committees, the, the, way, the way the committees work. You have never had anyone say that to you when you felt that you gave a convincing pitch about something? And I go around them. I, no single point failure. Remember NASA's first mantra, no single point failure. In this case, you've got millions of taxpayers who desperately want to find extraterrestrial life. They're the ones paying the money. NASA has – would have done nothing with their $10 billion unless they had $10 billion from the taxpayer to do this with. So ultimately, they, the ultimate boss, the power is in the people. They just have to give a damn, which means they have to know, which means it has to be sexy, which means it has to be sold, which means you need a public uh, conveyance of why this is important and definitive. And in the next round of proposals for next year, Chandra's paper proposal should be in the queue to be evaluated with a whole bunch of people looking over NASA's shoulder and letting NASA know they are looking over their shoulder because it's straight mainstream science and has been for 50 years. But yeah, still, but I, I think you're very optimistic. <laughs> I, I, I really don't believe that this is going to be as then easy. Then you believe as... in the Kobayashi Maru scenario. 
no, 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 no. No. You know what that is, Chandra, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Star, but I, Star I, Trek. I, yeah, yeah. I, I love that metaphor. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, but I think I think we all um, respect democracy. I think democracy and the people are paying for all this. So they have to have a say. I think that hasn't worked. I think democracy has failed in politics as well as in science, isn't it? It's, yeah, but that says yeah. there's no ever. You, you can never win. You know, it's no, like, no, 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 no. It doesn't say you can never win. It says that those guys are never going to step outside of their boundaries. That's yeah. all. You have to find a way around the very academics that you're looking for. I don't have credential. a spare ten billion to build my own web telescope. We have to use what's need there. It. Yes, you do. You don't need it. Yes, you, you do. Don't need you need a you, you need, need a handful of intelligent, crazy people. That's all you need. Yeah, you need and to what do they, and what and what do they do? And we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. So why don't we kind of hold what we're going to do until the last half hour segment. And we might even open the phone lines and see if somebody out there has a bright scenario for how to defeat the Kobayashi Maru no win scenario. You're on the other side of midnight. If I can get my switches properly aligned here, my guests this morning are Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh and Ron Gerbron is his cheerful, positive, optimistic self as usual. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, now Monday morning, very, very early in the land of enchantment in northern New Mexico. My two guests this morning are Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, noted, I would say, world-class, probably one of the few 
pioneers in this remarkable field of astrobiology. And Ron Gerbron, who is our resident uh, generalist and uh, is known for, well, he's known for a lot of things. Anyway, gentlemen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open the phone lines here uh, and see if someone out there has a bright idea for how we can break the logjam. So if you want to join the conversation, if you have commentary on anything that we have said or maybe some things we haven't said this morning, 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. And no ideas to me are too far outside the box because we've got this incredible, gorgeous toy. And I'd like to start with that given that NASA has created, gentlemen, a public institutional framework for soliciting, and they've specifically said citizen science participants and proposals, meaning they're supposed to be evaluated on the merit of the idea, not on the institution that the he or she citizen scientist is associated with. So let us test the proposition. If they accept other citizen science, and don't accept Chandra's proposal, then we can prove something is rotten in the state of uh, wherever, okay? So I'll let you answer that, and then I'm going to take, we have a call. We have a very innovative caller. I know the I know the caller because I know the signature on the call. So what, what's your response, guys? Should we not go the invited institutional route that NASA said, this is what we want you to do, send us a good proposal, and we'll rule on it based on the merits. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting uh, invitation. But, I mean, that invitation has been around for many, many other things as well. Uh, But they have not had the high visibility and intense public interest of web. Remember, it's about surfing the public consciousness you can't surf unless surf is up. Surf is up when it comes to web. Yeah, well, surf, I mean, I think the, 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 the so-called peer review and the censorship always works in this uh, modern situation, isn't it? Where the all these invitations for proposals and so on uh, are there interesting uh, developments in terms of. I'll social- tell you what I will do. I will I will do some of the legwork. I don't have all the spare time I have with nothing to do, but I will commit myself. I will Mm. ferret out the citizen science channels for proposal for you. Because I I think it would be useful to have you as the principal investigator backed by a coterie of citizen scientists to prove that the public does give a damn. And remember, Mm. it's more than just NASA. NASA is dependent on web working because of money by a Congress, and Congress Absolutely. is amenable yeah, to political pressure as we're going to be exerting extraordinary pressure vis-a-vis Artemis and the two unmanned missions in the next few months. So um, are you guys ready for me to open the lines and bring on our mysterious caller? Go ahead. Okay. And with a flick of a switch... Robert, you are on the air. Thank you, Richard. Uh, a great show. I wanted to say uh, hello and hello to Dr. Chandra. It's a pleasure 
to make contact with you. Uh, my comment's going to be very brief. I think that uh, it's a little premature to be celebrating the, the death of uh, Judeo-Christian science. With regard to, <laughs> uh, I heard your squeal of delight, Richard. Notice, notice, notice what he figures out to be the first in his commentary. Obviously, okay, well, obviously, Chandra, we we touched on it. We're not we're not discussing no, no, no. Christian Science. We're talking. No, no, no. I'm discussing picture number three, and it says a presumptive galaxy, a galaxy 35 billion uh, light years away, which is about three times farther away than the last known uh, or estimated age of the universe at 13.5. Of course, we get to. 39.5 and 40. No, but, but see, you're, 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 you're mixing apples. Yeah, Robert, Robert, stop, stop. You're mixing apples and oranges. The age of the universe is not directly connected to the putative distance of the objects that are used to estimate the age of the universe. Chandra, please explain the difference to him. No, I'd like to, I'd like to make my comment first and then let him explain the, the uh, estimate. I'd like to say you, there are two presumptions there. The distance is a presumption. And the presumption that it's a galaxy. I've seen thousands of galaxies. This doesn't look like a galaxy. Most galaxies are bright in the center and dim out toward the periphery. I don't think you know what you're looking at. I don't think that's a galaxy. Also, the pleroma surrounding this object, and I won't call it a galaxy, is asymmetrical. It's not an even glow. I think you may be actually looking at the vestiges of the Big Bang, or the eye of God, or the eye of Horus, and a hole in the universe from which energy is flowing, inflating this big balloon, which seems to keep expanding. Yeah, I think, I think that's a valid point. I mean, the fact that the, the presumption that it is a galaxy is still premature, and, uh, and, and certainly the jury, it's not been published in any peer-reviewed journal, and it could well be that this, uh, the, 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 the so-called furthest galaxy is not a galaxy, in which case uh, what you're saying is uh, is valid. But there have been galaxies that are, are too far away to uh, uh, to accommodate in the in, in in the general sort of narrative of the Big Bang. This, uh, is, this is from Hubble data, not Webb. Hubble data, right, right. But I mean, well, the, 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 I mean, you asked me the question of the age of the universe. The age of the universe is sort of essentially simplistically reversing the expansion and saying that if you reverse the direction, the reverse of the, the expansion vectors, you get to a time when the when all of the matter in the universe was at a point, and that point, that moment in time is the 13.8 or 13.9 billion years. So it's uh, extrapolation. 35 billion years away. Yeah. 35 billion lights. Chandra, he doesn't understand, and frankly, I'd like you to explain that myself, the difference between the 13.8 billion year universe lifetime as judged mm. by the redshift and mm. the 35 billion year distance, which is what you in your paper that you're writing have proposed for this particular object based on what is in the open literature now. There's yeah, a- I mean, yeah the, uh, based on the redshift, it is, uh, it is, uh, at a distance that is uh, that there should not be any galaxies, but I I, I take your point that uh, until it until this sort of uh, clump of luminous material is shown to be a galaxy, I think the jury might still be out as to what it is. So we got to perhaps keep 
keep our options open. I'd like to just say that I think you've discovered something very important, but it makes no sense to me that this object could be farther away, three times farther away from us than the actual age of the universe. So I think it bears more uh, scrutiny, and I'd like yeah. you to comment on asymmetrical pleroma around it. My theory is that the Big Bang was real, and it didn't close. It didn't stop. It's an open hole in the cosmos. And energy is streaming into this universe from another universe from which all of this energy emanates. And it is, that may be the point at which all of this supermatter is filling up the universe to keep it expanding. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I can't dispute that. I, mean, I don't have enough of the technical backdrop to discuss the details of... Well, wait, 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 wait. Given that the, the size of the field of view of Webb mm -hmm. on that deep field galaxy view, which is my uh, number one item tonight, mm. um, is the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. That's yeah. optically the size in the sky of that little teeny, 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 tiny patch of sky with this yeah. incredible deep vision from the mm. head resolution. Mm. The, the odds that you would find on that little tiny fly speck the entry point of energy into the universe that created the whole universe is, is, is not in the cards. In other words, <laughs> in, in other words, you're not looking at the center of the universe an expansion point, uh, Robert, you're looking at an object in 3D space that optically could mimic what that might look like, but until you get the spectral data, and the spectral data will tell us if this really is a galaxy like ours, like Andromeda, pretty much similar, except it's very far away as opposed to right next door, you won't, A, definitively know it's a galaxy. I think I think they're basically judging on the basis of the overall uh, color. Well, I think I'm judging it on a lot of things. Uh, its shapes, its luminosity. No, I didn't say the, you. I said they, the ones who published. Oh, they. Okay. And, and, and yeah, said the other point, they, have, they have been looking in the direction of where they think this expansion began. So it is possible that they did hit a shot in the dark, and we may be seeing perhaps the or one of these openings uh, in the cosmos that may be feeding this universe. The other point is the asymmetrical nature of the pleroma, and it seems to be streaming in one direction more than all the others. So I'd like to have Dr. Yeah, but Sean we have all point. kinds of examples of asymmetric galaxies much, much, much closer. Where we have stunning high-resolution imagery showing individual stars. Galaxies are not symmetric spirals, particularly if they collide. And that, of course, introduces the, another Dr. idea. The question was for Dr. Chandra. Richard's answer is still correct. You were saying that. I would agree with what you said. Well, 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 I think, well, I think well, that's well, based on redshift. So if we take redshift red shift seriously, how can we say that this is 35 billion year, uh, light years away? and um, say that uh, it is not older than the universe. That doesn't make sense to me. Yes, it's, it's, you're confusing two separate things. Let me try to think of an analogy. I've been thinking, what's the analogy? Okay, 
if I'm if I'm if I'm looking uh, down a street, okay, and I'm looking at taillights of a car, and I know the street is is a, is a limited length. It's like three miles long, okay, and based on the width of the taillights, and I know how big they should be next door. I know how far away the taillights are from me at any given point. The distance to the object depends on the distance itself, not on its velocity. In other words, the the Big Bang model, 13.8 billion years, is based on a model of acceleration and motion, whereas the actual distance of this object is based on another inverse interpretation of that motion, how far it could move in the time that we can see it, and the one does not have to equate to the other. And that in, in this case, it, it looks to be about three times as far away as the, quote, age of the universe, but the age of the universe is not a boundary. It, it's not, you know, we're nowhere near looking at that distance where that boundary would come into into play, we're looking at things still much closer because that's a boundary defined by the speed of light. And nothing is moving at the speed of light. It's all below the speed of light, which means the actual universe is much bigger than the mythical boundary that we haven't seen. So we may be looking farther back into the universe uh, than we know. So something's got to fall here. Well, Either the age of the universe has got to fall. And I don't believe your analogy holds water. I'm sorry. You know, you well, but, but belief, belief and reality are two different things as we've demonstrated tonight. I think we need, the bottom line is we need more data. This is very uh, sort of a tentative uh, discovery. Or no, it's a discovery is okay, but the interpretation and the and, and the well, I, I presume that whoever put out that this is the farthest galaxy could only do it if they had the spectral data, the redshift. Not necessarily. I think people are very rash in making statements that are exciting and uh, Yeah, but that would, be, that would be totally stupid because then they'd be proven wrong. Someone else, some other team is going to do the detailed work. And if X said it's the farthest galaxy and Y proves it's not, then X mm. looks like an idiot. You know, there are lots of people around who are idiots, aren't they? Well, only there if they don't... Another, maybe oh. another factor involved here, which is politics, uh, you know, we're talking maybe. about. Maybe, maybe. Paradigm <laughs> shift, and also PR, and sensationalism. But I hope you get my point about the word uh, presumption. Uh, the two presumptions is the distance and the uh, presumption that it's a galaxy, and that, that's all I wanted to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. I think you got to yeah. we got to take that on board because I think that the, the, as, you, as you said, the asymmetry is disturbing. If it's a galaxy, it shouldn't look like that. And if it's just, just I, I, I think, I think well, to me, it reminds me, Chandra, of the same phenomenon where you know, going back to Fred Hoyle and the nucleosynthesis models and the ages of stars and all that, right? And then the verification with galactic clusters and where the turning point off the main main uh, main sequence is and all that they mm. found a few years ago maybe 10 15 years ago that there are globular clusters i don't know whether they're around the milky way or around andromeda or m33 or whatever but they found globular clusters that appear to be distinctly older a lot older than the galaxies that they're orbiting 
which mm. was really kind of stunning at the time. And I n- yeah. never heard what the resolution of that enigma was. Yeah. Yeah. You got to read the papers of of uh, uh, Child and Gibson to f- find possible explanations. Of that. I mean, the global clusters are certainly reputed to be much older than the galaxy itself. So they were, they were the original bits of the galaxy. The rest came together at a later time. Dr. Shankar, I have one more, uh, one more point that I would like mm. you to consider yeah. in regard yeah. to the eccentricity of the pleroma that we see around this object. Could okay. it be possible that this object is in superluminal motion, that it's traveling? It's traveling so fast that it's leaving a tail. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 certainly, that's certainly one possibility that cannot be discounted. It could be, it could be an artifact of, of, uh, of great speed here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Wonderful show. Great to speak to all of you, and I'm honored to speak to Dr. Sandra. By the way, Robert, I, I wanted to thank you for your contributions last night. I, I meant to thank call you, me. and I got kind of tied up with you know, prep for tonight, but I wanted to thank you publicly. You were a brilliant um, addition to last night. Thank you, Richard. You know, when I find my friends uh, in a little bit of trouble with a missing uh, guest, uh, I always try to help you out. You know, I support you 100%. And uh, we'll talk again. Thank you, you all. We will talk have again. A- okay, guys, we got we have we have less than 10 minutes to wrap up something amazing. What would you like? What What did we not cover, Chandra? That you'd like to cover? Uh, well, I think I, I just want to cover a philosophical point. I think the presumption of all these uh, applications that we are planning and so on is that democracy works in science, and is that a is that a wrong presumption at this stage? Because I think I think democracy, both in politics and in science, have failed. The original democracy that we know about is the Athenian democracy of 5th century BC. And in that democracy, every single person, every single male certainly, had a vote on every issue. Now that is furthest from the truth. I mean, even in, certainly in politics, in Congress and so on, you'd know that you, you have delegated the responsibility to a small bunch of people and, and then you lose control. The, the, the individual, individual citizen has no control of what's going to happen and what's, uh, what is going to be his, uh, his destiny. See, I would argue, and I'm not doing this just to be argumentative or the devil's advocate, yeah. I would argue just the opposite. Okay. I, I, I think the reason that science has drifted so far away from the people it's supposed to benefit yeah. is because most people don't give a damn. They have delegated by uh, at all levels of government – the other guy does it. I've got a representative. I can, you know, go to the movies. I can go twerking. I can, you know, uh, find my, you know, neighbor's wife and go to bed with. In other words, their lives are so much more preeminent than the body politic of being a citizen. But there are certain occasions where the public attention is focused back to stunning scientific developments and potential breakthroughs. And the mechanism they have to wield real influence already exists because science used to be the purview of a few rich people who basically were dilettantes and decided with their own money to do this or do that or whatever. Now, 
Yeah. Now we have science funded at the public trough since World War II, where citizens, taxpayers' money is expended on projects, and NASA spends an extraordinary amount of PR money trying to prove to its taxpayers that they're spending money on behalf of the taxpayer. The fact that they're not, that it's a lie, is because most people don't give a damn. So what we need to do, I think we need to do, is to look for those areas it, those areas where people are so interested and concerned and the media on their behalf is so interested that we cut through the obfuscation and the corruption and, in fact, we get people back in control to determine the outcome that they really want to hear, which is truth as opposed to lies. And I'll give you an example. Back before Mars Observer uh, was launched, I conducted a campaign through Art Bell to basically get uh, uh, Sidonia rephotographed. And NASA gave every possible excuse in the book for why they couldn't possibly do it. No way. Technically, legally, finance, every possible excuse until I got thousands of faxes on NASA's floor following shows I would do on Bell the following morning so that NASA had to politically pay attention because we also sent faxes to their congressional representatives on the right committees. And NASA had to backtrack and change and put Sidonia on the list of targets to be photographed. Now, they've lied like crazy about what mm -hmm. they found, but it's part of the common database. And the same thing can function here only better because everybody is now for a moment, for an instant, for one shining moment, calling Camelot to mind. They are focused on web and what it's finding, and it's going to find such amazing things that will keep yeah. their attention that I think if we get in the queue and we propose your proposal seriously through mm. the open door, we can hold their feet to the fire, mixing our metaphors madly. Yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, the, 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 the last similar occasion I had was with the Rosetta mission to uh, the comet. 67PCG was the mm -hmm. name of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, along with a colleague of mine, was on the initial science team of, of one of the projects and con concerned with the Rosetta mission. And we had, supposed, we, had, we had proposed a very simple life detection experiment, like the detection experiment that was put on Mars uh, in the Viking uh, experiments of 1976. Uh, and this was uh, at a cost of some $8,000. And the, the response we had from the Rosetta uh, planners was that this, we can't waste time on this. this is not, uh, we have no capacity to transport this and so on. So it was, it was shelved. In the event, we have huge amounts of data from the Rosetta mission, which shows consistent, consistency with life, with microbial life. But uh, the final proof is still left out because they didn't put the experiment. But that experiment could be flown privately now because the cost, because of Musk, of launching private missions. For instance, there's a private mission going to the moon called Capstone that NASA yeah. basically bought from advanced space systems north of me here in Colorado. It costs... Yeah. Oh, they, 30... yeah, they, they should look for life. They should look for life on, at, the polar, at the poles of, of the moon, for yes, instance. Yes, of course. You know, there's water on the moon. 
and inevitably there would be biology on the moon. There's no question about it. The Earth and, and, and moon are, are so close together and so tied up together. It's incre- it would be incredible if there is no microbial life in the polar caps of, of the moon. And whether uh, they would gentlemen, be- yes, Ron. Yeah. Uh, who, uh, which uh, either one of you might know this. I can. Uh, who was it that just recently announced that they're launching a um, mission that's going to just go out and sort of hang out in the solar system, waiting for something interesting to come by? I know there's a biology. I, I know there's a long duration biology experiment that's designed to go beyond the moon and expose Earth microbes to interplanetary radiation and whatever. And then well, no, this was like the asteroid missions, and they were saying you know when because the most interesting ones often show up uh, rather unexpected because you know they hadn't plotted them before, and yeah. um, they uh, I. I I definitely recall a news item within the last month about that, and I was thinking there's also a brand new comet, a uh, long-term comet. that's uh, um, Bernarda Deli. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's one. Yeah. Morelli, I think. Yeah, yep, that it is. is coming in in a couple of years. I haven't got the yeah. name down right yet, but it's two big long Italian names. And uh, yeah, I thought, yeah. sound familiar? Yeah, they should put those two should put together. They should immediately start uh, targeting that. That probe that's getting sent out to go to rendezvous with that—it's like a second chance at Oumuamua. Well, I think that the evidence for that uh, comet carrying life is is, is tantalizing. I wrote, I wrote a paper about six months ago. It's in, uh, in astrophysics and uh, journal of Ast- in uh, astrophysics, I think, uh, online journal, and the. The eruptions that were witnessed on that comet at a distance of about 30 or 40 astronomical units is just absolutely bizarre. Unless there is life underneath the surface, they wouldn't erupt, wouldn't produce huge comas. No, wait, wait, wait. You, all right, we got uh, basically two minutes left. How does life in a comet produce eruptions? Oh, by, by just like a... Like a uh, Arts. An explosion of, of a fermenting bottle of wine. Oh, so you oh. basically are creating gases, and the gases eventually break. Gases okay, all right. High, pressure, high pressures and 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 essentially disrupt the overlying ices, overlying frozen material. I mean that's been happening for many comets, and we've interpreted that as clear evidence of biology at great distances. And the comet. So this comet is very interesting to pursue when it gets closer to the to the sun. Absolutely. Gosh. Well, gentlemen, uh, we're basically uh, out of time, but I wanted to thank my guests this morning, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh and Ron Gerbro. 90 I seconds. Think, I think we've had a very interesting conversation, a very interesting conversation, which will obviously only continue because, as I said, uh, my promise is I will share it out. The, mm-hmm. the avenue for creating a public dialogue uh, and proposing from citizen scientists uh, a, a mission, a proposal for web. And in the next round of proposals, yours should be in, in, that, in that data stream. And we will find out if, in fact, the process is, is honest. And if, if it's not, we'll let everybody know. Hey, guys, the end of the week. Thank you so much for your participation last night, coming to the rescue of a guestless host. 
And, of course, we're preparing very detailed uh, plans for next weekend. Uh, Neville Thompson will be here. He guaranteed that he's put a ring around his finger. He will be here. And then, of course, Sunday night, we're doing three hours on what's really on the moon. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.